You're listening to episode 12 of the Secret Origins podcast, featuring the Golden Age Fury and the Challengers of the Unknown. to the Secret Origins Podcast, a review show dedicated to the Secret Origins comics published by DC in the 1980s. I'm your host, Ryan Daly. Later this episode, I'll be joined by new guest Doug Zavisha to talk about the origin of the Challengers of the Unknown. But before that, Greg Arujo is back to help me crack the complicated history of the Golden Age Fury. Thanks for coming back, Greg. Thank you for inviting me. I, I hope I can crack this. <laughs> She's a... Uh... She's definitely interesting. Yeah, she is, and we'll find out more about that in a minute. Um, And as you, of course, are well aware, Secret Origins was an anthology series published by DC Comics, with each issue telling the origin of at least one hero or villain from the DC Universe. The series ran for 50 issues between January of 1986 and June of 1990, and also included three annuals and one special. All told, between the 54 comics with the Secret Origins banner, something like 120 stories were chronicled in the series. But this story is unique in that the Golden Age Fury didn't exist before Secret Origins issue 12. Now, Greg, I don't know if we can talk about the origin of the Golden Age Fury without first explaining who the, at the time, Modern Age Fury was in Infinity, Inc. Can you help me with that? Well, she... Lita Trevor was originally the daughter of the Golden Age Wonder Woman and uh, Steve Trevor. And she was created, I believe, by Roy Thomas. I don't know exactly who illustrated that story, but I think she appeared for the first time in like Wonder Woman number 300. Mm-hmm. And thanks to Crisis, the Golden Age Wonder Woman no longer existed. So imagine if you woke up one day knowing that you were the daughter of wonder woman and then go went to sleep and then woke up the next day and found out that you had a completely different history that's kind of what happened to uh modern day 1986 fury well that was also my life from like age seven to 15 i went to bed thinking that wonder woman was my mom and waking up and finding out it was something terribly terribly disappointing you too (laughs) uh dreams so yeah so obviously this character more than some others, was definitely shaken up by the crisis on Infinite Earths. And Roy Thomas kind of had to scramble, because here he has a character whose entire history, and the Infinity Inc., they were legacy heroes. That, yes, that, that was that, their shtick. That was their whole reason for being. That was definitely the hook. Yeah. With being the sons and daughters of the Justice Society of America made them kind of unique. Even more so than maybe the Teen Titans, who were just sidekicks. Mm -hmm. And once Crisis merged everything together, and DC kind of turned their 
attention away from the Earth 2 stuff. They just really became quite generic. I don't think that was lost on Roy Thomas, that fact that uh, the things that made his book special were suddenly the, the rugs were pulled out from under that. So he's forced to scramble and he's forced to create a new origin, new, essentially new parents for this mm-hmm. figure. And the hook is that these are characters who are related. They're the descendants of the Justice Society characters. Now we've taken out the Golden Age Wonder Woman. She no longer existed because Earth 2 didn't happen. So he's forced to create, essentially. I mean, if he wasn't going to make her the daughter of another pre-existing character, he's got to create a new one out of whole cloth. So Yeah, exactly. Roy felt that if Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, and all those type of characters were ganked out of the World War II era, that there was definitely a gaping hole that needed to be filled in some way. He felt like that energy had to be re- somehow replaced. And so why not with some newer, younger heroes in the during the All-Star Squadron time. And that's when he created what would eventually spin off to be the book, The Young All-Stars. Yeah, that was created by Roy and Dan Thomas. Mm -hmm. And uh, originally that book was going to be called The New All-Star Squadron, but they decided that wasn't enough of a title change. Uh, And he wanted to keep the words All-Star in kind of an homage to All-Star Comics. Mm -hmm. And the three that he creates as replacements are Iron Monroe as a surrogate for Superman, mm-hmm. Flying Fox as the replacement Batman, and rather than creating a different name, he just gives Fury a mother named Fury. Mm-hmm. But this story precedes All-Star, or Young All-Stars, issue one, so Hi. this is her first appearance. Yes. This is where this character is created. Yes, she does kind of make a kind of brief cameo appearance as, in a poster, in this, about a month before this issue comes out in Infinity Inc. number 35, some people consider that to be her first appearance, but I'm not buying it. Was, that, was it a promotional poster? Like a- no, actually, Star Spangled Kid was in his movie studio, was trying to put together a Justice Society of America movie. And it was a movie poster. And amongst all the heroes, you know, you have uh, Dr. Midnight, Johnny Thunder. The Golden Age Flash, Hawkman, and all the other ones. Uh, there's Black Canary, mm-hmm. and they have this mysterious woman in a golden armor. Hmm. And they just, that's how it is. There's absolutely, as the story progresses, nobody says, oh, who's that? Or remember when Fury was a member of the team. So she's just kind of there, I think, just to see if anybody's paying any attention. Do you know who drew that issue? Todd McFarlane. Okay. And some people consider that he's one of the co-creators of the character. Not buying that either. <laughs> yeah, well, he's, he's not the artist on this one. But also, like, from what the research that I was able to dig up was that the character's look and appearance was designed by Michael Baer. Yes. Tom Brinberg is the artist, obviously, for the Secret Origin issue. Mm-hmm. But as I did a little bit of reading, and in the uh, back matter of, like, maybe it was the second issue of Young All-Stars, Bear comes up with the look, and Roy likes it so much that he has the inker of the Secret Origins issue uh, redo her look in that story. Hmm. So the way that it sounds like Fury in this Secret Origin issue has a completely different costume. And I did a little bit of looking, but I could not find anything. Maybe it's in one of the All-Star Companions, but... I thought that was kind of interesting. He's kind of who I would consider to be the co-creator of this character. 
Michael Bear or Tom yeah, Michael Bear. Yeah, yeah. That's assuming anybody wants to step up and claim that they created her. Well, we can talk about her costume in a little bit. But before we get into that, we're going to take a short promotional break, but we'll be back in a minute, so don't go far away, people. Sawate. My name is Stella, and I am the host of Backroll to Oracle, the Barbara Gordon podcast. Backroll to Oracle is a podcast dedicated to Barbara Gordon, the first woman to hold the mantle of Backroll for an extended period of time, roughly 1967 to 1988. The goal of Backroll to Oracle is to examine the character's history from her first appearance as Backroll and continuing through her tenure as Oracle. Each episode looks at a vintage issue of Detective Comics or Batman, as well as other books like Justice League and Freedom Fighters and modern issues of Batgirl and Birds of Prey. I also keep track of news involving Batgirl and other members of the Bat family, and I have a revolving series of segments like Babs in the Tube, which highlights appearances of Babs in TV and film, Shipper Spaway, which looks at a variety of comic and pop culture couples, gives their history, and determines whether they are hot or not, Reading with Stella, which could be described as an audio drama, or just me reading a book that relates to Babs or doesn't, and of course, the mainstay literature recommendation. I have been blessed to interview writers Scott Beatty and Chuck Dixon on their Backroll Year One work, Brian Q. Miller on his Backroll run, Dwayne Swarzynski and Christy Marks on their separate Birds of Prey work, and the creators and actors of the Backroll Spoiled, the web series. I hope to interview more creators and actors in the future. My goal, most importantly, is to make a fun, entertaining, and thoughtful show that people enjoy and from which they learn. Find the show online at thebatmanuniverse.net and iTunes, and follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Batgirl to Oracle. Thank you, and fly on, Babs lovers. Okay, listeners, we're at episode 12, which means, of course, we're talking about Secret Origins issue 12. And if you've been paying attention to the publication dates for this series, you know that this is the last issue that came out in 1986. The cover date was March 1987, but the book would have hit shelves and newsstands on December 11th of 1986. The cover to issue 12 depicts Fury and the Challengers of the Unknown, as drawn by Paris Cullens and Carl Kiesel. Uh, your thoughts on the cover, Greg? I kind of like it. It is kind of a cohesive piece with the challenges of the unknown actually confronting something unknown. <laughs> Seeing as the, Good this point. is absolutely the first time that this character would have been encountered by anybody. I didn't even think about that. They are. They're, it's, they're revealing a new mystery. Exactly. And it's a mystery that I don't know gets solved anytime soon. Nice. All right. Are you good to do the recap? Yes, sir. The Secret Origin of the Golden Age Fury is written by Roy and Dan Thomas. The artists are Tom Grinberg and Tony DeZuniga. Sorry, can't pronounce his name this evening. Colorist is Carl Gafford. Letterer, David Cody Weiss. The coordinating editor, Bob Greenberger, who probably just told Roy, yep, everything's spelled correctly. <laughs> this story takes place already in action and takes place during... A couple pages in Infinity Inc. number 35. What's going on there is Infinity Inc. and the Global Guardians are sent around the globe on missions for the Injustice Unlimited, who are a bunch of villains who are holding hostages, including the modern-day Our Man, to ensure that the, the heroes do what the Injustice Unlimited team wants them to do. The modern-day Fury is accompanied by The Shade, who takes her to Athens to steal a piece from the altar of Erebus, 
and of course by modern I mean 1986. The story has Lita descending into a crevice in the so-called Hill of Ares, where she's suddenly encountered by three demonic-looking creatures. The creatures know she's after a piece of the altar and would tear her apart if she wasn't who she is, indicating they know Lita, or at least they're aware of who she is. While she's momentarily startled by the three creatures, she tells them she isn't intimidated by them. Who are you, three harpies, she asks. One of the creatures tells Lita not to insult them by confusing them with harpies, particularly when they're going to bring her enlightenment by telling her about her mother. This catches Lita's attention. She wonders how they could know about her mother when she doesn't even know who her real parents are. The creature, now identified as Electo, begins telling its story, telling Lita of a day when armored chariots rumbled the streets of Athens at the very foot of this hill. And now we flash back to German-occupied Athens, where an old woman is asking her daughter, Helena, a young 15-year-old girl, where her son is, and it's nearly time for dinner. He will be here. He always is, isn't he? Helena responds with some contempt. Helena's mother is concerned Michael will be caught by the Germans if he's out after curfew. Michael Cosmatos is in no danger, at least not from the Nazis, Helena responds. If he is ever to be killed, it will be by Greek hand. Helena's mother is confused. Ever since her husband has died, Michael has provided for the family, making sure food was always on the table. Helena responds by saying, yes, scraps tossed to him by the Nazis. Before Helena can explain further, her brother Michael returns home. Her mother is relieved, and Helena confronts her brother. She tells him she knows how he gets the food he brings the family from the Nazis who have occupied their country, the same occupiers who killed their father. Helena and Michael's mother is shocked to learn the truth. Helena threatens Michael, tell her, if you don't, I shall. And at this point, I really wish the mother had a name, but in a couple panels, it won't even matter anymore. Michael responds by viciously slapping Helena, knocking her to the floor. How can you do such a thing to your own sister, their mother gasps. Helena then reveals Michael is a collaborator secretly working for the Nazis. Michael doesn't deny Helena's accusation, but reveals he's only returned home to tell them that he would be piloting a boat to Crete that evening and won't be back for a while, making him the worst possible collaborator spy ever. Michael tries to justify his actions to his family by saying, instead of braiding me, you should give thanks to that Christian God you believe in that you're not starving, as so many in Athens already are. Michael turns to leave. Helena jumps from the ground and reaches into Michael's pocket. She tosses a large amount of money onto the dinner table. Occupation money, so much that he could have only gotten it from his Nazi friends, Helena says. Who did you betray for this blood money, Michael? Helena and Michael's mother desperately tries to stop their bickering, but as only in comics, the stress of the fight has triggered a heart attack, killing her in true superhero origin fashion. Helena tells Michael that he has murdered their mother as he has so many of their own people. Michael then responds by, if she hadn't told their mother about his dealing with the Nazis, her death could have been avoided. She isn't having any of it and tells Michael to leave. As he leaves, Helena exclaims, run, Michael, but you'll never run far enough or fast enough to escape my revenge. Do you hear me? I call all the curses of this land upon for the murder of your mother. Then Helena races after her brother. She's forgotten a curfew and several Nazi soldiers catch sight of her and begin to chase her. She runs past the Acropolis, past the Parthenon, and to the nearby Hill of Ares. She doesn't notice a crevice until it's too late and she falls into it. Landing on a ledge, Helena looks up to see a couple Nazi soldiers who are willing to help her out, but will also shoot her eventually. 
Not hearing the soldiers, but rather her brother, Helena stamps her foot on the ground and exclaims, I curse you, my brother, and all that's holy, I curse you. And since this is a comic book origin, this triggers an earthquake, causing Helena to fall into the crevice where she encounters the same, cre- same three creatures from the start of this story. Somehow she summoned the three creatures now named Electo, who's telling the story, Tisiphone and Magera? Yeah, Electo, Magera, and Tisiphone. Helena's confused because she didn't realize she had called on them, and she asks who they are. They're the three furies of ancient days. Electo, she who perseveres in anger, Megira, the jealous one, and Tisiphone. Helena now recognizes them as figures from old myth. Now, the Greeks are Christian and haven't believed them for centuries. This is something the furies don't like to be reminded. Once the furies punished crimes, particularly ones against women. The Furies continue to explain when the male gods gained the upper hand, the upstart Zeus had imprisoned them in Erebus, midway between Hades and the world above. No one had called upon them for many years, until Helena did that very night. She's kind of confused, as one would be if they were suddenly you know, confronted by three Furies <laughs> at the bottom of a crevasse after being chased by Nazis. Sounds crazy when you say it. <laughs> when she stamped her foot on the ground and... As she uttered a curse, it was a sign. But it wasn't for the two Furies, but rather for Tisiphone, the Blood Avenger, who punishes crimes of kinship. She's willing to give Helena some of her power, but there is a price. Tisiphone asks, you spoke of a brother. Do you still wish to kill your mother's slayer? Helena thinks for a moment. Kill him? I I don't. Yes, yes, whatever the price, I'll pay it to avenge my mother's murder. Tisiphone, blood scythe, slices down onto Helena's shoulder. Despite Electo's protests, no, Zeus is forbidden. Tisiphone replies, Zeus is dead, Olympus is crumbled, and if we ourselves can no longer walk amongst the mortals, one, there is, after all, the empty eons who shall do so on our behalf. Now that's a mouthful. Helena screams and suddenly finds herself once again on the cliff, and now wearing a strange light golden armor. Feeling an unholy warmth rushing across her, her veins radiating from the spot where Tisiphone's scythe had touched her shoulder. As the power of the Furies rise within her, she realizes she is no longer Helen Cosmatos, but Fury, the daughter of Tisiphone. Thinking once more of her brother Michael and not realizing what she's doing, Helena leaps from the ledge and lands atop the Acropolis, conveniently in front of a handful of Nazi soldiers. The soldiers recognize Helena as the girl they chased earlier in the night. They wonder how she got there and why she's wearing this golden armor. As the soldiers try to subdue Helena, she quickly dispatches them, knocking them into columns with a newfound super strength, bullets now bouncing off her golden armor. Two of the Nazis manage to hold Helena down and threaten to slice her face with a knife so badly her own mother wouldn't recognize her after the Nazis have finished. This threat triggers something new within Helena. As she says, how dare you defile my mother's memory? A strange transformation has begun. The image of Tisiphone can be seen forming around her. She's a monster, one of the soldiers gasps. Monsters, it is you who are the monsters, she replies. And by the power bestowed by Tisiphone, you will be the first to die, and then her brother. Once the Nazis have been killed, Helena leaps away from their acropolis and towards the sea, her changes continuing. Cut to Michael Cosmatos, piloting a boat between the mainland and the island of Crete with German spies dressed as Greek peasants hoping to pass as British agents. Michael is searching for a British ship to deliver the Germans. Suddenly, the fully transformed Helena has arrived on the boat. Michael looks at the, at the creature and mutters one last word. Helena? It's, 
But it was not Helena, nor the Armored Fury. She was now the Blood Avenger, with the pent-up Rage of Tisiphone incinerates Michael with her fiery gaze and triggers the explosives the German spies had hoped to smuggle aboard the British ship, apparently killing everyone. The explosion catches the attention of the British ship. A lifeboat is sent out and discovers a single survivor, a shivering Helena, no longer in either her Blood Avenger form nor her Golden Armor of Fury. One of the people on the lifeboat looking for survivors is Johnny Chambers, ace newsreel jockey, known to readers of All-Star Squadron as Johnny Quick, although he's never identified as Johnny Quick. He asks Helena if she was on the boat. She's confused. She doesn't seem to remember anything that's happened that evening. Johnny tells Helena he doesn't think the British ship will be able to take her back home anytime soon. Helena replies, I have no home now, unless it's with my uncle in America. Johnny says he'll be able to take Helena back with him quick. I guess that's how we're supposed to know Johnny Chambers is Johnny Quick. And the man from the Sunset Continent kept his word. But ah, that's quite another story. Electo's story comes to a conclusion. She tells Lita to take a piece of the altar and leave. Lita wants to know more, but the Ancient Furies will say no more. Lita leaves saying, then someone else will tell me the rest of the story somewhere, sometime, and I won't rest until I know the rest of it for my sake and for the sake of my unborn child. And there's a little box at the bottom of the story saying, for the untold story of both Furies, see Infinity, Inc. and our forthcoming second series of All-Star Squadron. The end. I have no notes for this story. It was fine. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was thinking about this story. And, you know, if we were to remove all this stuff involving the Golden Age Lyda, I mean, the Golden Age Fury, if we were to remove that and the, the framing sequence of Infinity Inc., this would be a pretty good story for one of the House of Mysteries in that time period. I definitely agree with that. Um, and I'm going to come back to one particular panel about that later on, or one page. Um the first thing that I thought of while I was reading this was that Thomas or Grinberg, they did their homework uh, in terms of like names and locations. Mm-hmm. Um, the three theories also called Irenes in Greek mythology, they were sort of ancient goddesses of vengeance. They were typically depicted as a trio of female deities with kind of inhuman features. Their names were Electo, Megara, and Tisiphone. So all of those things were correct. Um, and the point of the theories was usually to punish Oathbreakers or, or people who committed crimes against family members or guests or people that you were supposed to have some kind of bond or obligation to. Probably the most famous story with the Furies uh, was part of Aeschylus's Oresteia, the, the trilogy where Agamemnon, one of the generals of the, the Greek armies going to Troy, sacrificed his daughter before the Trojan War in order to basically ensure victory. Well, his wife didn't care for that, so when he came back from the war, she killed Agamemnon. And then Agamemnon's son was you know, sent by the god Apollo to avenge his father, so he killed his mother. And then the Furies started hounding him and wanting punishment because he killed his mother, even though he was avenging his father. So there was this, essentially, basically a trial about what his familial duty was, but... And that's kind of the most famous story with the with the Furies. Bef- kind of <laughs> uh, before 1986, because <laughs> certainly this this story was uh, a lot more entertaining. Not, the, not. <laughs> this that kind of falls into where Roy's headspace is during this period of time, because 
he pulls in the ancient Greek myths for Fury. He's pulling in for Iron Monroe the stories of the gladiator. Neptune Perkins pulls in from Captain Nemo and um, some other stories. So he's got literature on his mind, I guess, since he really has no interest in pulling in together DC's Golden Age history anymore. Um, Since it's all been changed on him, it's easier to work with that stuff than the ever-evolving history and continuity of the DC universe. Right. I mean, he is... What, it, what I appreciated was that he is sticking within, you know, ancient Greek mythology. Wonder Woman's origins are based in Greek mythology, and he, he's keeping to that, but he's kind of changing. Instead of the gods in the pantheon up on Mount Olympus, he's going somewhere different. He's taking a different part of Greek literature and finding the Furies to kind of, which I don't I mean, he already had that name in mind. What yeah. Was there ever an explanation for why... The, the regular Fury from Infinity, Inc. had that name? In the post-crisis, she just kind of – she never knew who her mother was, obviously, until this story. Mm-hmm. So she just decided that she would call herself the Fury, kind of like the Furies of myth. Mm-hmm. And her adoptive parents, who knew that Fury was her mother, were kind of taken aback by that, but never revealed that, hey, your mother mm-hmm. was the Golden Age Fury. Other things of note that they were uh, doing the homework on in terms of geography, the Parthenon is depicted pretty pretty accurately for this time, um, and where Helena ends up stumbling into where the, basically the ground opens up and swallows her. It's a place called the Areopagus or the Hill of Ares. Um, it is a, a kind of like a mountain outcropping next to the Parthenon. It would take a super leap like she has on page ten to get from one place to the other. I had meant to look to see exactly how far she ran from her house to where she ends up because it felt like you know, as I was reading it, I was thinking, that's a long – that's a, a heck of a jog. I've been to Greece. I've been to Athens. Uh, I went there when I was in high school. And it's a very – it's a kind of a fascinating structure because the city of Athens – I mean, you're not going to confuse it with another, like with a like in a major American city. It doesn't have massive skyscrapers, but it's an, it's a city. It's an urban city, and it's very widely spread out. But right in the center of it, sort of jutting out, like it's breaking through the earth, is the Acropolis, which literally translates into the high city, and it's this. It, it looks like a mountain kind of coming up out of the city that would that had been sliced in half, and you've got these temples uh, on the top. And if she's running from her home, if she's fleeing the Nazis, it would be a really weird decision to leave the city streets where she would have more cover and actually head up the Acropolis and head like up the mountainside. I mean, if she's if she's in a blind panic, I can kind of understand it. She might be thinking she can hide in the hills, she can hide amongst trees and everything. But it's still, it wouldn't be the first, it wouldn't be the easiest choice. It would it would it's sort of like in a in a bad horror movie when yeah, you know exactly. the the young girl decides to run in the completely opposite direction of help, <laughs> like where she oh I'm just going to run out into the field. And, yeah, her running out there really didn't make much sense at all. But. No. Only in comics, I guess. Yeah, yeah. When you were in Greece, you didn't run across any three mysterious furies yourself, did you? No, just three mysterious prostitutes. Yeah, well, you get a different superpower from that, I suspect. <laughs> That's not what the doctor called it. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, let's pull back a little bit on this story. My first real note like on the, on the substance of the story was on page four. 
the first panel when uh, when Michael is slapping Helena. Yeah, that's a bad picture. <laughs> well, on the previous page, her brother just towers over her, and once again, it's some weird perspective that she looks like she's about three feet tall compared to Michael, mm-hmm. unless he's like seven feet tall. Mm-hmm. But it looks like he's throwing a really powerful, forceful slap at her. And it yeah, looks like it looks like the only thing that's moving is her hair. Yeah, like that's just. I, I think this is early in Grunberg's career. Yeah, I think this is would be his second superhero assignment. The first one being the Star Spangled Kid story mm-hmm. a few issues back. And then he leaves, and their mother dies of a heart attack. Comics. I, no, I know that's that's not my complaint. My complaint is that. For what is going to be her motif, which is fury, which is rage, which is based on revenge and vengeance and this demonic imagery that she summons, this is such a passive death. Yeah, exactly. And Michael, not necessarily wrong in saying that if Helena hadn't said anything, she wasn't going to have a heart – she wouldn't have had the heart attack in the first place. Exactly. exactly. I mean – She's just a, a – just, Michael is not a good person at all, but she's in some way culpable for her mother's death as well. And I feel like if she's going to put this curse on him, if she's going to hate him, hate him for selling out his own people to the Nazis. Make a bigger deal of that. Mm -hmm. But that's not what causes this break. It's because her mom dies. And I think – like. Roy could have picked one thing or the other, one catalyst or the other, and I feel like she's punishing him for one crime that's almost incidental based on what he was really guilty of and what really made him an evil bastard. Oh, exactly. So I just felt like that hurts her motivation. So I kind of like that emotionally that kind of took me out of her story pretty early on. I think that may very well be just the limitations of the half an issue that Roy had to play with. If he had had a full – had a couple issues uh, in Young All-Stars to expand that, he may have been able to but to breathe a little bit. Right. But the, the mother could have – I mean she could have revealed this that her – that Michael was, was betraying them, that he was working with the Nazis. The mother could have freaked out and there could have been a struggle and Michael could have actually – been more directly her. involved. Yeah, could have. Yeah, could have hit her, and that caused her to die. Or like they're fighting over something, and she's like stabbed or cut or something. There could have been so many better, more overt and direct causes of her death that would have justified not just hating him, but like putting this evil curse on him. That's basically just sacrificing her own religion and her own values to summon these ancient Greek deities. Kind of funny you mentioned that because Fury kind of gets a revised origin in right around the year 2000 in the Legends of the DC Universe. She appears in a three-part story with Wonder Woman. Her entire family is killed by the Nazis, and she's the only survivor. That's what triggers her curse that gets the attention of the Furies. And that's Rather, better. That's a, that's a better that's, story. It makes her a little bit more unhinged as a character as well, mm-hmm. um, which I don't know if I, I like that aspect of it, but I only was able to find two of the three parts. But yeah, that's pretty much what happens in that one is that her family was killed in, I guess, maybe some shelling mm-hmm. and the Nazis chase her. And then after that, she 
stamps her foot and says the curse, and the Furies grant her with the superpowers. And the only the only difference, I think, again, Roy Thomas being a, a stickler for certain details, um, the nature of the Furies in ancient Greek mythology, they really tended to punish family members or people who who broke vows or committed sins against somebody that they had a an obligation to either respect or protect or defend or something like that. So I can see I like the fact that she's targeting her brother. It is more of a personal yeah. motivation than simply hating the Nazis and killing the Nazis, but it just there was a better way of doing that. Yeah, I agree. What do you think of her costume? Well, it's interesting. Um, back when I read the original issues, when these books were coming out, I think I thought it was kind of dull. Um, it's kind of in between being flashy and just being kind of generic. I really, you know, I hate it. <laughs> like I've, I guess I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be nicer than that. But yeah, there's nothing much to it. I'm, I'm kind of curious what the original look was for it because obviously Roy thought this, this was an improvement. It, as for an armor, it doesn't seem to protect very much. No, and that's, that's another issue. When the Nazis shoot her and it bounces off, that seems like a scene that was written for Wonder Woman with them shooting and her yeah. deflecting it with the bracelets. But instead, it looks like the bullets are just bouncing over the one shoulder that is armored. It's like yeah, exactly. they, they couldn't have pointed the gun anywhere else on her body. Like her hip? <laughs> yeah, her, her hips are exposed. Like, in terms her of like. Other shoulder. Yeah, I've got a few problems with it. First and foremost is probably the color scheme. And I get that they're trying to make it gold, but it's red, orange, and yellow. And the mm-hmm. most of it is this orange that's only slightly different than flesh tone. I don't think it works. Um, she looks like she has half of a bat symbol. Yeah, that symbol is supposed to represent. Yeah, but it's it doesn't, doesn't do it. It's like, it could have been like a scythe. It could have been anything else. I don't think I caught that until I read the back matter last week. Yeah, like oh, okay, yeah. that makes sense. This doesn't look like something that a true golden age character would have worn. Like this isn't something that would have been designed in the forties. This looks more like something that Nicki Minaj would wear to the Grammys. You <laughs> um, would probably would have covered her. Completely, if it was designed in the 40s. Yeah. And you kind of get the sense that they weren't exactly certain what to do with it. If you look on page 12 to the only full splash page, splash panel, mm-hmm. you can see the color kind of blending into her her shoulder and those scales that are on the armor yeah. appear on her bare shoulder. So even the colorist was confused by this. Yeah. yeah. Now, I don't like the other Furies costume either. The one from Infinity Inc. The- you know, that probably played into the color scheme on that one, the the red and the yellow, I guess, but, and uh, orange. Yeah, it kind of goes together. Mother and daughter, not great. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I think if if you want to if you want to symbolize Tisiphone and the blood vengeance, then then make this costume more red than it is. I agree. So, yeah, I, I don't like the costume. I don't think it's, it seems like anything that would have been true to the spirit of the Golden Age. I don't like the color scheme. I don't like the design. It's just – it's weird. Now let's get to what I think is the weirdest, most out-of-place page in this pretty weird and out-of-place story. 
And you mentioned that if you took away the framing device of the Lita Trevor story finding this origin and you just had this character in 1940s Athens, and I think you mentioned this would have been something out of House of Mystery. Yeah, it feels like it would, could easily have been mm-hmm. Kane, I, halfway expected at the end, Cain or Abel or one of the <laughs> witches from the witching hour to come out and say something witty. Yeah. Page 12. Oh, page 12. It's a full-page splash. It's the only full-page splash. And, like, Roy Thomas did not have a lot of full-page splashes in any of these origins. I it, was. This is a rarity. I do not like this panel, and I'm curious what's your thoughts on it. <laughs> like, it's... I don't know why this is here. I don't know what they're going for. Is it, okay, for if I'm, I will, I will scan this and I will put this on the website so people, if they don't have this book, they can see what we're talking about. the The image is of one Nazi straddling Fury with a knife, with a hand at her throat and a knife raised, and another Nazi holding her down. It's a very provocative image. It's it's you can't not see a kind of sexual sexuality in this page. My um, note for this page was kind of rapey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the whole just, story is kind of rapey, wouldn't you? Yeah. Think about it. They keep, we'll shoot you eventually. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, those Nazis have something in mind. Right. And then this. And it, this looked like it would have been in like an old creepier eerie, like an old Tales from the Crypt story. Like there's, there's this mad insanity, evil look on this Nazi's face as he's about to stab this woman. It's a horrific image. And it's like, this is the hero's story and you're showing her, okay, so this is her first adventure. She's fighting these these Nazis and we've already seen that she's clearly stronger than them. She's bulletproof. She can throw their heads into the pillars at the at the Parthenon and crack their heads open. And then for some reason, you're just going to focus on this one image and give an entire page to this, as you said, a a rapey image of Nazis about to gut her. And then she just casually throws throws them away. And in the next page, she summons this demon to Siphony, which kind of takes her over. And we don't see what that does to the Nazis. No. Part of me wonders if they were running short and... This was supposed to be you know, just a panel that uh, got blown up. I mean, it is completely out of place. It's It doesn't make any sense. It puts her in kind of a, a bad light. I mean, she's she's not in a position of strength at all in this. <laughs> and a splash page, you're, you're trying to – you're calling attention to this page for a reason, and this is not necessarily the best choice that either Roy or Tom Grinberg could have made. Okay. Picture this book came out this year. Oh, God. And picture this was a character that we gave a damn about. <laughs> anybody? Imagine this was Captain Marvel or Batgirl or Supergirl or Black Widow. Anybody. Yeah, the, what, do I, you, what, what would be the internet's reaction to this page? It would have short-circuited. Yes. And I think Roy Thomas and Tom Grinberg would probably be issuing an apology within an hour. Yeah, I think so. This kind of – when I read – Roy's going through an interesting phase, and, he, and it kind of continues into Young All-Stars. He starts to – well, it's 1986-87, and, and comics are getting, quote, more mature. So he's getting – you know, Iron Man Rowe is catching VD in Young All-Stars, and it gets really about as adult as you know 
you can still get in you know a mainstream DC comic. Mm-hmm. I don't think this was the era for Roy Thomas. I think no, he, I don't he, think he so. got he was left behind by post crisis. Sorry, right. I think he's kind of confused on what he thinks audiences want, and yeah, you know, this is a, really a poor decision. I was struck by it, and I tried to make sense of it for quite a while. For for the last couple of days, I keep coming back to this panel and thinking, "What was Roy thinking?" I'm I'm trying to take it out of context because out of context, if it's just like if this was to, a piece of war propaganda or something like that, when you just had these images of two Nazis attacking a woman, you get how evil and how bad they are and why America would fight and. In that instance, it's almost one of the best drawn panels in the book, if not the best. The detail on the uniform and the guy's faces uh, is striking. Yeah, exactly. But, but you've, already you, had, you've already kind of established Nazis are the bad guys. <laughs> but you this, can't. You can't take it out of context. No. Makes your hero weak in that instance. Sure, she, in the very next panel, she's kicking him away, but... You wouldn't. I don't know. Okay, well, let's, let's I move on. my mind. <laughs> yeah, let's. I don't. I don't. I don't know if we're going to say anything more profound than this. It's. I have no explanation for why that exists. But, Not a good choice by Roy. Okay, so we get towards the end of the story, and we see Fury in all of her Tisiphone glory. She is this blood demon of vengeance with cloven hooves and wings. And pointed, she she's all red-faced, demonic, bloodthirst. And when Michael sees her, his last words are, Helena, he recognizes her? Really? Maybe she's got a temper. <laughs> Has he he's seen her like this before? Maybe, I mean, maybe she heard, maybe he heard her curse. I don't know. It's, once again, comics. Yeah. I mean, even if you were going to have one page to be the splash page, I think this image of the Blood Avenger mm-hmm. version confronting Michael wouldn't be a better choice. I, I think it would. Um, I, I think Tom would have as much fun drawing it, I would hope. Or, or the next couple panels where she basically breathes or stares fire at him and he just turns into a skeleton, which is great, just melting the, the skin and tissue off of him. I love that little bit. I love how she kills him and then basically just blows up the boat with all of these Nazi spies. You um, waste an entire page with a, a, that splash panel and then then waste another you know third of the page with boom yeah. at the bottom of page 15. Maybe this, maybe this issue was supposed to be 14 pages, or the story was supposed to be 14 pages. And they're like, oh... We found out the challenger the challenger story is shorter than we thought. We've got to pep, we've got to pad this out. Stretch it, you know. But the challenger story is twenty two pages. I don't know. I don't know what they were thinking. So, um, and then yeah, for some reason we've got Johnny Quick or Johnny Chambers at the end to give a connection. I guess that it's not needed. Uh, I was I was actually disappointed that we don't see her meeting or her being rescued by who ends up becoming uh, Lita's father. Because I think if, if Steve Trevor, who's a military guy who discovers Diana in the old Wonder Woman introduction, then it would make sense to have her being rescued by a, a British sailor or somebody who becomes Lita's father. The, the thing of it is, 
I don't think we ever find out who Lita's father is. <sighs> okay, well, I, that, that was my next question. <laughs> I was like, is that, as, is that mystery ever solved? No, as far as I know that it hasn't. I think that they were teasing that it might have been Iron Monroe, but it's not. Hmm. And I did some looking on the internet at various different places, and it's an unnamed gentleman who she meets at some point that's uh, Lita's father. So she's much more concerned about who her mother is and never stops to wonder who her father is. So Hopefully it wasn't one of the Nazis in that panel. <laughs> well, that would be a, a completely different story. <laughs> yeah, that would be. <laughs> uh, okay. Um what were your overall impressions of the story? Well, as I said, it's it's really not Secret Origins 12. It's Young All-Stars 0. And as a lead into that, I don't know if this story does a great job of making you want to go search out Young All-Stars when it hits the stands three months later. You know, after you finish this issue, are you going to remember that you read not only a brand new character, a brand new character that's going into a brand new title and that title doesn't come out until june of 1987 i don't know if it does a really good job of bringing interest into this i would new have to, endeavor i would have to be really excited about infinity inc at the time in order to follow them there and i picked it up back in 1987 and i couldn't tell you necessarily why i did I really wasn't reading Infinity Inc. at the time. All-Star Squadron was gone uh, the month that this book comes out, the Secret Origin book comes out. The last issue of All-Star Squadron comes out, which is the secret origin of the Justice Society. Mm -hmm. I guess at that point I was jonesing for some Golden Age stuff, and I thought I would try the first issue of Young All-Stars. So who are all the characters in that book? We've mentioned that he, he's introduced a few newbies as kind of surrogates for characters that he couldn't play with anymore. So you, we've got you, Fury, Iron, Iron Monroe, Man, Flying Fox, Neptune Perkins, and Tsunami, both characters that were kind of introduced in All-Star Squadron. I think Tsunami is a brand new character from All-Star Squadron. I'm not certain if Neptune Perkins has uh, appeared before the All-Star Squadron. I seem to think that Roy didn't invent him, but I somebody else would know for certain. Somebody will answer in the comments section. And what you know, it's kind of interesting that Neptune Perkins and Tsunami are on this team because they're two underwater based characters and you're lucky to have one on a super team. <laughs> also on the team is Dan the Dynamite, uh, who was the sidekick of TNT, and he's killed. TNT is killed, and Dan the Dynamite ends up taking the, the two rings that uh, they would slam together and would give both of them superpowers. So Danny has superpowers as a result of having both those rings. Um, Sandy, the Sandman's sidekick, is also kind of a member. And later on in the series, the Tigress, who ends up becoming the Golden Age Huntress, Wildcats. Okay. So yep. joins the team back when she was a hero and before she ends up marrying Sportsmaster. And those are the main characters, and they get folded into into the All Star Squadron towards the well. They're they're considered like provisional members of the All Star Squadron, but become full members at, by the end of the series. None of that sounds interesting. <laughs> you know, I recently I used this as an opportunity to go through the back issue bins and try to find as many back issues of All Star of. of uh, Young All Stars, I couldn't, and I've read about. I read most of the first six, uh, most of the first twelve issues, and 
they're okay. I think I prefer the first 12 issues of All-Star Squadron than I do the first 12 issues of Young All-Stars. They're not bad. Mm-hmm. You just kind of feel you, you can kind of feel Roy's heart breaking with each passing issue because you know that he really wants what he really wants to do. He really wants to tell the stories that he, that he can no longer tell. Yeah. With with the characters well, that like was, Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, and the like. That was the something that Chris Franklin and I brought up way back in episode one was what Crisis on Infinite Earth did to Roy Thomas, and what he must have been thinking like when he basically came in the early '80s and got to got his own little playground with all these characters that he controlled for about five years, and then, and then after that was basically just almost powerless to, to have them almost all taken away. And with the, a new emphasis on everything new and, 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 or like modern or current then, that's his love affairs with these characters from a past time, just like there was no interest in them. There was no push for them. And the, le- the legacy characters weren't legacies anymore. They were just huh. one more alternative to the Justice League or the Teen Titans or something. And, there were they. There was five alternatives, and I mean, there's. It's kind of amazing when you think about it that given that DC at this point really wasn't focusing their attention much, if at all, on the Golden Age, that they would continue to have Golden Age origins in their Secret Origins title. Mm-hmm. I mean, eventually that would kind of diminish towards the end of the series. Well, one, but, once Roy left, then yeah, once Roy left, you didn't see them. At least not as often. I can just imagine somebody trying to pitch a Golden Age story that wasn't Roy Thomas. I'm sure that inspired a lot of memos saying no in creative ways. <laughs> no, I, I have a feeling it, it really only happened sort of piecemeal once they started going – once they started bringing in sort of more outro people like uh, like Matt Wagner and mm-hmm. James Robinson. And they're kind of bringing them in the, a special corner that where where they can kind of make an excuse for this golden age type of story, and and even his intent of having Fury kind of be the the new Wonder Woman, even that kind of gets replaced when John Byrne during his Wonder Woman era has Queen Hippolyta take over the role of Wonder Woman. When I think Wonder Woman, when Diana was, I really wasn't reading Wonder Woman at the time, but I I think she became a a Greek god mm-hmm. at that point, and. Hippolyta took over as Wonder Woman and then would travel back to World War II for a couple of years. So now there was a Wonder Woman in World War II, which made Fury even more irreverent. It, it, irrelevant. Ir, yeah. <laughs> I can't speak tonight. She could have been irreverent yeah. too. But. She, was, and she became even less important. And it, as I said, they kind of deal with that in the Legend of DC Universe story in which Fury starts to think of – of Hippolyta as her mother reincarnated, and that's the reason why Fury names her daughter Lita, mm-hmm. is a kind of paying respect to her adoptive mother. Of course, Hippolyta barely remembers her yeah. in the story, so Fury doesn't get a whole lot of respect in this story. Mm. Any other thoughts on the story or on the character? Well, she only laughed. The Young All Stars lasts about thirty-one issues plus an annual. The last issue is in nineteen eighty-nine, and she really doesn't appear much afterwards. I was kind of shocked that she did appear in a handful of issues of Wonder Woman 
during the Phil Jimenez era. Mm. I, as I said, I really wasn't reading Wonder Woman at that time, so I didn't know she was there. And she does appear in Infinite Crisis when Paradise Island disappears. And after Paradise Island disappears, she disappears. And I don't think she's been seen since. No. I mean, there was there was a daughter of Wonder Woman in the Earth 2 series, but definitely not this Golden Age character. No, I think Furion name only, but... Yeah, exactly. But, I mean that that could be said of a lot of <laughs> a lot of a their lot characters of the, recently. Yeah, exactly. So, I I guess good try, Roy. This is about the best I can say about this particular character. Yeah, yeah, it does nothing for me, but it's an interesting story. I mean, we got to talk about it, but yeah, exactly. But you know, as a story, I think it fails to inspire any type of interest that you might have in the follow up. I mean. There really wasn't any other things that, you know, if you were going to use this bit of real estate to promote your upcoming title, he knew that he was going to be dealing with Iron Man Rose Origins in his series. There was Flying Fox, but I don't know if that would have necessarily brought people into the series either. And he gets a couple issues for an origin as well. So, And then at the same time, he's trying to promote, desperately trying to keep Infinity Incorporated in people's minds. So... I guess that made sense to put the Golden Age Fury in this particular issue. Hmm. Yeah, I guess, yeah. It doesn't make me want to buy either of those series. So. Before we go, any sort of recommended readings that you can think of with this character where people would find better <sighs> stories? I don't think Young All-Stars is collected, is it? It isn't. If you feel like going through back issue bins, you can find them, um, unless I was the one who bought them all. <laughs> um so, you know, the first six issues are kind of an interesting look at the Earth 2 characters in the immediate post-crisis era. Um, Roy's trying to find his way. Uh, I don't think he really succeeds. The Wonder Woman issues might be something to look into, but I haven't read them, so I don't. I can't give you know either thumbs up or thumbs down. But generally, Phil Jimenez's run is considered really good. I would definitely don't recommend the Legends of the DC Universe, but if you want to ignore me, there are issues 30 through 32. And then I've pretty much gone over her entire publishing history between those three books, those three titles. And her daughter, the the other Fury, what was at the time the, the current Fury, mm. appeared in Infinity, Inc. Some of that series has been collected. I think the Generation Saga is yeah, collected. Only half of the Generation Saga oh. has been collected. Only half. Unfortunately, which is bizarre. If you want to look for something that's a good story involving Lita, Sandman, Neil Gaiman's Sandman, because she plays a, a – and the Furies, for that matter, play a large role in the finale of that series. But really, it's almost Lita in name only at that point. Well, thank you very much for being part of the show, Greg. It's always, well, happy, to, always happy to have you. You, you got the two uh, – sort of Infinity Inc. stories with Tom Grinberg on art. So maybe the next time we have you back, you can have something more fresh. I'll take anything, to be honest with you. I'm really happy you invited me to join in this party. Okay, folks, we still have one more origin story to tell on this episode, so check out the following podcast promo, and then come on back for Challengers of the Unknown. My name is Chad Bokelman. For five years, listeners were stuck with a mediocre show. Now we will fulfill our listeners' expectations to use the time and topics left to us and bring down those who are threatening to overtake us. To do this, 
We must become someone else. We must become really? something else. Really? What? <laughs> this, this, this is your this is your original attempt? <laughs> yeah, dude. At a promo? Yeah. I think you're kind of confusing what this show's about, Chad. <sighs> All right, I got another one. I got another one. All right. Okay, maybe 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 your second attempt will be a little more fresh and original. <clears throat> okay. Okay. All right. All right. I'm hoping. My name is Barry Allen, and I'm the fastest man alive. When I was a child, I saw my mother killed by something impossible. My father went to prison for her murder. And what? Okay. Stop, stop, stop. Time out. (laughs) What? This is the Lantern cast. We're supposed to be talking about Green Lantern. Not necessarily new material because most people don't like the books these days, but the point still is we're supposed to be talking about Green Lantern. I guess you're right. And I, I, I guess the old show wasn't really mediocre. I just thought it'd be funny. You did your best, Chad. That, that, that's what's so tragic. <laughs> yeah. Well, why don't you tell them what the show really is about? It's about Green Lantern. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, there's well, there's the comics. There's well, – let's run down some things. We've, we've done what? We've done commentaries? We've done – yes. We, we've done movie commentaries. We've done – Ring, our ring cyclopedia stuff, reviewing you know props and rings and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Movie reviews, we do we do stuff like that. Too. Yeah, yeah, we've we commented, uh, done running commentary on uh, on uh, issues per month. We've done random issue reviews, uh, old stuff and new. Lots of old stuff recently. Even we've even had interviews, uh, both in the old iteration of the show and the new iteration of the show with me and Mark. So uh, tons of tons of stuff here over at the Lantern Cast for you guys to listen to. It's not just one. We're not a one trick pony over here. Stole my line. You was just going to say that. No, we have a pretty broad base of topics and things that we do, and we think I think we have a little bit for everybody. So we certainly would appreciate everybody coming to check us out, and we think you won't be disappointed. Yeah, we, you can find us at LanternCast.com. We're also on uh, iTunes and Stitcher, so search for LanternCast, and you can find us easily there. And if they want to contact us, they're more than welcome to do so. Mark, you got that information right. You always do. <laughs> lanterncast at gmail.com <laughs> lanterncast at gmail.com and we even have a voicemail line guess guess what it's 708 lantern <laughs> awesome and we're on facebook and twitter so find the lantern cast in whatever way suits you best but definitely give us a listen either on our website on itunes or on stitcher we're always here for you guys and i guess what closing line light the lantern <laughs> <laughs> keep, keep, keep the emerald flame burning all right awesome Something wrong with the world today I don't know what it is Something's wrong with our eyes We're seeing things in a different way And God knows it ain't His It sure ain't no surprise
we're back, and my new guest is here to help me cover the origin of the Challengers of the Unknown. Please welcome, from the Doom Patrol blog, My Greatest Adventure 80, Mr. Doug Zavisha. Thanks for joining me, Doug. Thanks, Ryan, for having me. When or where did you first discover these characters? Uh, I want to say in Crisis, specifically. Um, well, not specifically, but more generally. They were always just kind of lingering in the background, and they were these people wearing purple suits and you know, as uh, as comic book fans, purple isn't exactly, it, it's not a color we look at for heroes, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, I never really got into them that much, but every once in a while they'd pop up. And, uh, you know, you'd get a series from them every so often, like Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale had their series in 91, I think. And I think that was their first actual collaboration. I think you're right. Yeah. And I think the Challengers had, you know, series here and there. Uh, before and since, and it always seems like they get some really interesting creators drawn to them. They debuted with Jack Kirby. You know, I mean, so that's, that's a pretty interesting creator to kick yeah, off. Yeah, and they, and they started off in Showcase 6, but as far as me really getting into the Challengers themselves, like I said, I'd sample them along the way, but never really got too deep into them until Rocky started appearing in Doom Patrol, Volume 5, the, the Giffen-Clark run. Mm-hmm. Rocky was showing up as sort of the, um, well, he was wearing a collar. And I don't think they ever actually, and, and this is getting a little foggy at this point, because, you know, you're talking back in, what, 2010, 11? Sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Rocky would show up wearing a collar, and he kind of served as a chaplain of sorts to the Doom Patrol, or at least a sounding wall. And none of the other members came in through the pages of that series, but Rocky was there, and that kind of sparked me to think, there's got to be more to this. So I started digging into it. And sure enough, Doom Patrol Challengers had a crossover during both their original series. That's collected in one of the archives. Mm -hmm. It may appear in one of the Showcase Presents, and we'll come to that towards the end. And uh, from that point, I've just decided to kind of start getting a little more into Challengers of the Unknown. Cool. So so really, the the level of expertise, we're hovering around Novus. (laughs) All right, well... Um, I'm sure if we forget any salient details, uh, my devoted secret admirers will mention that in the comments section. Oh, I, I have no doubt. <laughs> I was actually introduced to these characters uh, through the New Frontier, okay. um, so it was much later. But, of course, my I didn't really dive hardcore into DC until the mid-2000s um, prior to that. Even as I was getting into comics in the 90s, I was sampling – Really, just the kind of like the most popular stuff from from DC's books, other than a few Vertigo titles that were sort of outro. But it was uh, it was the New Frontier where the pilot character Ace Morgan was a pretty yes. strong supporting character. He was, and I liked I liked that connection that he had with Hal Jordan. I thought that was an interesting touch. You know, based on that, I was like, who who are these guys? I've never heard of the Challengers of the Unknown. I I like that name. I like that concept. And I just did like a quick. Google search or Wikipedia search and found out that they were Jack Kirby's more or less proto Fantastic Four. Right. And by then I was a huge Fantastic Four fan. Still still very much am. So I was like, what? Like early sort of pre Fantastic Four without powers? Let me check this out. So I got the uh the showcase presents Challengers of the Unknown book and right. you know, read through their series. So yeah, there was even though they haven't, at least you know, not in the last several decades, they've never really been at like the forefront of popular comics. I like the niche where they kind of live 
their their corner of the DC universe. I like the the idea and the concept of them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and like I say, they they seem to attract the creative talent, but it's almost like nobody really knows what to do with them to propel them to that next level. Right. And it seems as though the concept itself is just ready for the picking mm-hmm. with today's current media savvy, you know, audience. And they tried to relaunch him with the new 52, but that didn't seem to, to catch on. Yeah. Well, and as you mentioned, like with the current sort of the, the media markets, I think the best place for the challengers might be in places other than comic books. Uh, but we can talk a little bit more about that after we talk about their story. Certainly. Before we dive right into the, uh, the origin story, did you have any thoughts about the cover? I wish the cover, I wish Paris Collins and Carl Kiesel. Kiesel? Kessel? I think Kiesel, but I might be wrong. I wish they were the inside. And I'm not digging on Chuck Patton, but this is a very fun, very energetic take on the team. And then throwing Fury in there, of course, makes it even a little bit more energetic. Maybe it's... I like everything about this cover except for Fury. All right. And maybe, maybe it's the color scheme... It's this sort of bronzish orange and yellow pattern, and it's right in the middle of the giant hourglass behind them. It just sort of turns into this brown blob in the center of the image. But I like the striking, like green background against the purple of the of their costumes. You know, that's that's a very comic booky look when you think of purple and and green. We often associate with villains, especially in DC, and well, I mean, a lot of Marvel villains too, but also the Incredible Hulk. Um, so though that's that's very comic booky, but then there's just this brown that right in the center of it. So I would agree, and thankfully, you know, she's got an exposed face and left hand at least. The right hand seems to be melting into that muck as well. <laughs> yeah, but then it, anchoring the the bottom of the cover, you've got all five of the challengers in their purple outfits against that green popping out at you. Mm-hmm. But Collins took it a step further and gave them all different physiques, different attitudes. Just in that pose, you see mm-hmm. Prof with his finger on his chin, thinking about something. Yeah. And then you've got uh, Rocky, you know, kind of flexing in that muscle man pose. All right. Well, let's get into the story then. All right. I found it interesting that they had the uh, front cover billing as number one, but wound up being the second story. Mm-hmm. And as for the story itself, story itself reflects on their first adventure. Uh, they take some some liberties with it, but what they do here is they introduce you with a splash page, and that splash page has Morellian gripping the orb of energy in the magic box, and the challengers are, are perched upon an hourglass. These are four men living on borrowed time. And on that splash page where we've got the challengers, it, it actually looks like it could have been a cover had this continued as just single character issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, the creators are writer Mark Emanier, Artist or penciler Chuck Dixon. Chuck Dixon. I <laughs> <laughs> would have been an interesting choice. Yes, it would have been Chuck Patton, inked by Bob Oxner, colored by Kerry Spiegel, or lettered by Kerry Spiegel rather, colored by Carl Gafford, Bob Greenberger as the editor. And their appearance from there, we find out that they are on this show or slated to be on a show titled "Real Incredible People," kind of a mashup between "That's Incredible" and was it "Real People." was the actual other 80s show. So they're being introduced, and uh, we see them backstage. little spoiler to the end of this uh, synopsis here. They never quite make it to the stage. <laughs> uh, so we get introductions into each of the characters, and they, they hand it off nicely. On the next page, uh, you've got Rocky 
explaining things a little bit, and he hands it off to Red. And then Red hands it off to Prof, and Prof hands it off to Ace and June. Then you get June nudging Ace a little bit. While we're waiting, hey, how about you tell me about the origin, because I've never heard it. Man, I'm going to call BS on that one, June, because you appeared in their second appearance, and there really wasn't a whole lot to be uh, told otherwise at that point. (laughs) But Ace gets into it, talks about the, uh, the flight, the doomed flight that they were on. As it turns out, Ace is explaining that they won an appearance on, they're referring to it as a TV show just like this one, uh, called Heroes. But in the original appearance, it was a radio show. And the heroes were, were brought together, and Ace was designated as the pilot to bring them to the show rather than the show fronting tickets to all of them. So as they're flying along, four men on borrowed time, what's going to happen? How about a lightning storm? So a freak lightning storm pops up, plane crashes, the story keeps going. There's a very nice profile of the challengers at the top of page five. Yeah. As they're heading into this disaster that's going to become their lives, you see each of them reacting. Uh, I'm going to go from right back to left, but you've got Ace sweating it out. Rocky seems to be sweating it out almost as much as Ace, mm-hmm. which is kind of interesting considering Rocky's kind of your your big lug. Yeah. You know, he's the guy who's probably going to be the first to fly into action with his fists. And then Prof is mouth agape there, eyebrows up. But then Red, same pose, mouth agape, eyebrows kind of up, but he's got that that little slight bit of determination creeping in in those eyebrows. And this is where Chuck Patton really owns this story. He does a great job with the faces, and unfortunately for Chuck, this story is dense. They try and cram a Jack Kirby story uh, that was just covered in caption boxes and word balloons into 22 pages of a modern comic. But from there, we get into the crash, and miraculously, they're able to survive the crash, they're able to get out of the plane, and Red's watch is intact and still keeping time. This is where we get the concept of the guys living on borrowed time, at least for the concept of them being together as the challengers of the unknown. So we switch back. The story bounces back and forth between their origin and the individual origins is what we're coming up on. But we go back to the uh, backstage appearance of Real Incredible People, where we see one of their co-stars for that evening's show sculpting Richard Nixon out of potato salad. (laughs) And I don't know why, but I think Chuck Patton was really pushing hard for this one. I think it's the best part of the story. I I would agree. (laughs) It seems more appropriate to something like a, a Blue Devil story, maybe, or maybe even Blue Beetle. <laughs> but here, it, it just works. <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it, it's showing that uh, Evanier's having a little bit of fun with the tale. So then we get into the actual, uh, what led to those challengers becoming identified to be on the show Heroes. And uh, Prof is talking about some experiments that he was, or let me, let me get this right. I did many dangerous research projects one day. Many dangerous research projects. They show him swimming with dolphins and one of them caught in a net with a landmine. For such an educated man, he probably could have phrased that a little bit more articulately. No doubt. And I don't think that's really much of a research project. Looks to me like you're scuba diving. (laughs) So then uh, what happens is it's explained that the mine blows up and he's presumed dead. But there's a a, a disconnect here between the, the script and the imagery. Uh, we get Prof breaking surface with the dolphins on either side, but he's doing it with a smile. 
And that's where each of them come around to their secret origins, as it were, for the individuals before collectively as the challengers. They're all in these death-defying events or uh, worse. I don't know if death-defying, how you get worse than that, but they wind up facing death. Mm -hmm. And the panel that comes out of that, for example, Red's climbing a mountain and gets buried in a landslide. And there he is. He's been there for 12 days. 12 12 hours. hours. 12 hours, yep. Days, hours. You know, it's all the same, right? Mm -hmm. So he's been there for 12 hours, and he's sitting there with a smile. Hands are free. He's got a pickaxe within reach, but (laughs) he's sitting there just kind of in snow, just like you would be if you were playing in the backyard in January, you know? (laughs) Then you get into Ace's crash, uh, another crash. Let's put this together. Ace's crash twice. We're on page eight of this book. (laughs) I'm not getting in a plane with this guy. So Ace walks away from his crash. Not only does he walk away, he's holding his helmet under his arm. Like he just completely landed the thing, but Patton drew an incredible explosion uh, for the the actual crash. Mm-hmm. Then you get to Rocky, who bounces between, and this is Rocky's entire existence with my familiarity to it, which is, as I mentioned, not as deep as it could be, but he bounces between being a world-class wrestler and a boxer. Mm-hmm. And depending on what page you're on of some books or what volume you're on of Challenger's appearances, he's one or the other or maybe both. But in his pre-origin origin, he's up against a sumo wrestler who crushes him to the point where he was actually pronounced dead. And yet there he is on the autopsy slab, cracking a smile, ready to go. Doesn't look very crushed to me. He's kind of reinflated at that point. So it comes back to incredible people there, and they're backstage again, and there's this box that's been brought in for their appearance, and don't peek, but the guy who's telling them, the, the showrunner or stagehand or whatever this guy is, says, don't peek, but look, there it is. It's right there, this box that we don't want you to see, so look at it. And the box, of course, slides down a ramp, knocks over some scaffolding, sends the challengers into action. Page 10 of that action, we get uh, read for whatever reason, just swinging on a boom stand to explain to Rocky how quickly they need to get into action rather than just running across the stage. Yeah. Any, any grown adult who's ever like had a moment where I'm going to try the monkey bars because that's what I did as a kid (laughs) knows that it it looks awkward and it actually doesn't carry you from place to place any quicker than running. (laughs) Exactly. And and it might even slow you down. It it would. (laughs) But then, uh, then Rocky manages to support the scaffolding, keeps the, Potato salad sculpture of Richard Nixon from getting crushed, again, the critical piece of the story. And we find out that this box was the mystery box from their origin back in showcase number six. And from here, the story plays fast and loose with that first appearance of showcase number six. But the challengers grab the box, get it off the stage, get it out of there as fast as they can, and take it to a remote island just like they did in their origin where they then continue to reveal their origin to June, who's still asking the questions as though she's never heard any of this. (laughs) Uh, And that origin involved a sorcerer named Morellian, who presented this box and wanted the challengers to crack into it. Uh, The challengers in that origin took the box to Aku Island in the Pacific Ocean. And from here, the secret origins issue gets a little different. Uh, This is where the fast and the loose comes in. The box still has these contraptions on it or these secret compartments, and one of them does produce an egg. However, in the the original story, that egg 
released a like a giant stone centurion almost. Yeah, it was much more humanoid. It looked like it yes. had kind of a a Roman like uh, centurion type of helmet. Yeah. Yeah, and I think maybe that's just what Kirby wanted to draw versus what Patton wanted to draw here. Right. And Patton's monster is certainly more prone to come out of an egg than what Kirby had drawn. The origin continues to uh, to face off with that giant monster, which I don't believe they ever truly give a name to, or at least not that I can discern here. Um, but the challengers, one by one, wind up facing off different surprises out of this giant box. And we get into the fact that these surprises really aren't all they seem. Uh, and the challengers are able to take care of them a little easier and more conveniently, considering we're on page 18, it has to be quite convenient and unfortunately small in panel before wrapping up the story. Morellian makes his appearance in their origin, finds the Ring of Immortality, so basically he just wanted the challengers to act as fools, crack all the traps, get the actual prize. Kind of equivalent to Indiana Jones and, and the idol you know, that he swaps out. Right. Throw me the idol. Throw me the whip. That type of thing. Um, but Morellian shows up, and in this case, the idol is the Ring of Immortality. So what does he do? Hops in the Challenger's plane, and it must be Ace's plane because <laughs> within the 20 pages of The Secret Origin, we have our third plane crash. Everything happens in threes. Exactly. <laughs> Except for the Challengers who are four, but yeah, everything happens in threes. And so you get that plane crash, Morellian's gone. We go back to the, the origin as it's being told. Uh, where the challengers in present day are confronting this box. And this is where their origin is done for sake of this story. But we've got a new story blossoming here where the challengers come to, well, they're reminded by June that, hey, I'm part of the team too. And it seems as though in this issue, in these pages, that there's something of an agenda here to, to push forward the equality of June. And by all means, there should be. But I don't know that it needs to be pronounced as much. It could just be carried along. You know, June, you're one of us. Of course, you're going to draw a straw like we did for our origin when we first encountered this box. But she needs to remind them of it, pull them out of their pig-headedness, and the story moves forward. June draws the short straw, opens up the box, and there's an old guy in it. We never find out who the old guy is. We never find out how he got there, other than he's crafted these boxes before, and he's chosen to live in one. But it looks like it's Ace. Says, don't you uh, go to the market or the bathroom? And the old man's reply is, I don't have to eat. And if you don't eat, you don't have to go to the bathroom. Ah, yes. Comic book science. (laughs) So the old man begs the challengers to leave him in the box. And the challengers are just fine with that. And just fine with walking away from the box before anything bad happens once more. The old man in the box is actually watching those incredible people who announced that, well, sorry, the challengers didn't make their appearance, but we've got this guy who's going to carve the challengers out of chopped liver. <laughs> challengers blast off into the sky, and that is the last we see of them in Secret Origins number 12, and unfortunately the last we see of them until Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale tackle them in 1991. Yeah. I mean, there's a, an appearance or two. I think they show up in the background of Millennium somewhere. But the less said about Millennium, I think we'll all agree, the better. <sighs> yes. <laughs> all right. Where to begin with this story? Um, well, let's begin. Let's go back to the beginning with that splash page. All right. I, I love it. And I absolutely agree with you. Seth. If that was the cover to a book, like if this had launched Challengers of the Unknown issue one, and that was the cover, I'd have picked that up. 
Oh, yeah. Everything you need about these characters. You see the four guys. You see them in danger. You see the hourglass, that sort of thematic image for the tone. You see monsters. You see wizards. You see weird objects with a a bit of what looks a little bit like Kirby Crackle in the background. It's it's all good. It's everything you need. And, And this is what the challengers should be. I really like that the story is framed by their appearance on a television show. Because, A, it's, it parallels what their original setup was supposed to be in their first appearance back in Showcase 6, that they were going to appear on a radio program together. So it's a nice little update of that. And it's also it's a, it's a good narrative device. It gives them an excuse to tell their origin again. Yes. Um, and actually, this is the part that I found kind of weird. Like, why didn't, why didn't Evanier just stick with that? Because you could have had them sitting on the chairs talking to these TV hosts on real, real incredible people reliving their experience. And that could have been the device for having them tell the story because it is weird that they're telling June. Like this was their first appearance after crisis. And even though the characters hadn't really changed, like the crisis was supposed to establish that this is who they are in the new continuity, the new earth. I mean, they, so I don't know how many adventures they've had, but they tell June, you're one of us. It's not like she's their intern. They're right. treating her like she's a valuable teammate. But she doesn't know how they came to be or like what, how their organization started. Exactly. And it's not like she's a part time member. <laughs> <clears throat> she, she frequents the books. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She was there from the beginning, like you said. Yeah. So yeah, I thought it was weird. I was a little surprised that they established that they're going to be on TV and then didn't follow the, through with that by making that the device for which they tell their story. But but clearly, the only reason that was done was to get to the potato salad sculptures. <laughs> which is, I, I love that so much. And it's not it's not that Chuck Patton is just drawing a mushy Richard Nixon head out of potato salad. It's not that part. It's the fact that Rocky is fascinated by this yes. <laughs> because we come to it again, like three times, yep. like the first yep. time they're, they're all gathered around. They're talking to the producer who's going to put them on stage and Rocky just walks away from them. And he's like, what the heck are you doing? Is that potato salad? And, and when that scaffolding falls, Rocky's <laughs> as much saving that sculpture as he is giving the guy who sculpted it. Yeah, absolutely. All they needed to do was get the guy out of the way yep. and Red took care of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all, all Rocky is doing is saving a potato salad. And then they get the forklift involved to put the scaffolding back in place. <laughs> this origin has, as you said, it very well could have been told to the host of the show. And you could have had these same cutbacks. And you probably actually could have had a few more of them. Mm-hmm. You could have gotten a little deeper into everybody's pre-origin origin, really. Yeah. And I think what this book is really missing is the what next or the so what of the challengers. I mean, it shows you their adventures, but if I'm not mistaken in this series, secret origins at this point, they're the first kind of normal people other than maybe crimson Avenger who really makes a good appearance and, and has a full story to tell. And there could have been so much more put in here, you know, the, the challenger haters or, you know, just other pieces of their adventures that, that would add depth to the story. Yeah, I think you're right, and and you mentioned it during the synopsis that the their original adventure by Kirby and David Wood was already a dense story, yeah. and they're not only trying to encapsulate that whole story, but they're adding this framing device, which takes up quite a chunk of change in oh, yeah. in terms of comic page real estate. I mean, they don't get back into 
dealing with the effects of this box and everything until like more than halfway through the story when they get back to Aku Island. So they really, I mean, they, they jump through all of the different dangers and the threats that come out of this box with, that Morellian sets on them. At the same time, I, I like that element of the original story because it showed a variety of different types of adventures that they could have as a showcase for what these characters do in that first appearance. It was nice to see them going up against giant monsters, weird floating energy balls, like little miniature bugs that like spin them up in webs, lots, right. lots of different stuff like that. It also showcased their different talents and abilities because you do have these four guys whose one is the brain, one is the muscle, one is the pilot, and one is like the daredevil. And, and Evanier doesn't belabor the point and, say, and explain them each as such, but he gives you that, that sliver of their life before they came together that peeks into, this is what these guys do. Mm-hmm. This is what makes them different from one another rather than just four ciphers in purple costumes. Right. I mean, yeah, and it's, it goes back to this, this thing that I always come back to when I think about the DC Comics heroes, whether it's the classic superheroes or sort of oddball guys like this, is that these men would risk their lives even if they weren't heroes, even if they don't have powers, even if they weren't living on borrowed time, they still live lives of danger and lives right. of adventure because they choose to. And that's exactly exactly what happens here. You know, I mean, jumping in under scaffolding that is falling mm-hmm. to save somebody and to save, of course, a potato salad sculpture. <laughs> as far as the art goes, Patton is, is he's solid throughout this story, but nothing overly extravagant. You know, there's nothing that makes you go, wow, this absolutely had to be drawn by Chuck Patton. But then there's also nothing that makes you go, well, if somebody else had drawn it, that certainly wouldn't have been there or that certainly would have been there. I think if you didn't have the backstage part of the story, had a little more room to expand, gave Patton some larger panels to spread out in, it could have been a little more uh, full of pizzazz. I completely agree with that. That was the note I was going to have. If if Patton really had more room to breathe and flex, it might have looked a little bit more flashy, but it's just, it's a crowded story already. Yeah. When we get to the end, the sort of ancient one-looking guy who has been in the box for over 300 years. Right. Um, and the joke is that he's sitting there watching television for all time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's only had the miniature television for a year. I mean, right. like, those things didn't come around until the early 80s, I think. So what was he doing before that? <laughs> what had he been sitting doing there sitting around for 290 years? Well, he said he gets people to bring him things to read and do, but never really gets into what those things to read and do are. And in the box itself, there's not much there. You know, there aren't remnants of anything. There's no bookcase. There's, I don't know. It, it, it yeah. It's got to be a powerful antenna. If he's in the middle of some, yes. you know, Southeast Asian island. In a box. In a box. Made of who knows what. Yeah, I originally. I can't thought, even get my internet signal to go like outside on the front porch when the window is open. <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> we have so many uh, so many dead zones in our house just <laughs> yeah. for our, our cell phones too. Yeah, the Wi-Fi sucks in my bathroom. There you go. <laughs> but when I turned that page initially after uh, June's expression of "Great God in Heaven," mm-hmm. I was thinking maybe it was Marillion. You know, maybe this all came or Marillion. Maybe it all comes full circle at this point. Right. And 
the fact that it wasn't was just a bit of a disappointment. Especially since it looks a little bit like an older version of him. Yes. He's got the same type of beard. Yep. Just whiter. And that's that, too, was a little bit like the death of Morellian and the ironic twist in that story. The original story by Wood and Kirby nailed that ironic twist. Yes. This one doesn't. It's just too fast. Yeah, it, it is too fast. And, and back to the point of, you know, you this is your third plane crash in this story. Really? <laughs> it it kind of loses some punch there. Yeah. Ace, maybe you want to do something else. <laughs> Let, let's put you in charge of, you know, getting How food you, for the team. Yeah. How are you in the kitchen, Ace? <laughs> we'll still call you Ace. Don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> June, can you fly? Is that why June is there? <laughs> maybe, maybe they've been slowly bringing her along, giving her pilot license. There we go. Uh, and actually, when you uh, when you brought about in page five, when we get the profiles of the four men up there, um, you commented on how Rocky is sweating too, and not quite sweating to the amount that Ace is. But I, I like that detail, and because Rocky strikes me as the type of character that is very super confident in his abilities, which right. is to fight, to take a beating, and to give a beating. That's what he does. But in a situation like this, he has absolutely no control. Yep. And I think that would probably terrify him. Somebody who is that concerned with their physical presence when they cannot control their, outs- their, their surroundings, it tends to really put them off and put them into unease. And so I, I like the fact that he was sweating that much. And, and that single panel and your description of it right now, that just solidifies, you know, in this proto Fantastic Four, Rocky's, uh, there is no doubt Rocky's the thing. Mm-hmm. But when you get to this page, Rocky is Ben Grimm. Yeah. He's got the heart. He's got the physicality of it. He's also got the concern for others, even though he plays with that hard shell to protect that or to deflect that. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, I, I it's it's pretty easy but I think I mean if we if we're drawing the one to one comparisons then Red is Johnny, Prof is Mr. Fantastic, Rocky is thing most of the time and I think Ace is a little bit thing, a little bit Ben Grimm in that first issue before he became the monster um because thing Ben Grimm was their pilot and he did kind of have that. it's yeah, Ace is a little bit of all three of the others. I would agree. And certainly for a large portion of their history, June was Sue because for a long time, Sue wasn't a proactive member of the Fantastic Four. Um, I like the character, but she she's a product of her time. Where yes, she is. Yep. Yeah. Other notes about this issue or this story specifically? I was very surprised that in the, the text piece or the letters page, back matter, mm-hmm. however we want to refer to that, there is no mention of the challengers. Yeah, most of the back matter had to do with the the golden age characters that Roy Thomas was writing. He that was usually his little sandbox and he he used those to explain the characters that he cared about and in this case I just I don't know if the challengers ever were a blip on his particular radar. It's a pretty odd pairing for this issue. Yeah, yeah it is. I, I Greg and I talked a little bit about how Fury needed to her story needed to be solidified before Roy Thomas could launch the Young All-Stars book. Why they decided to pair that with Challengers, why they thought Challengers needed to be revamped at this point in the series, I don't know. Right. I mean, Challengers may have made even some more sense with um, even Wildcat, you know? 
Mm, yeah. and if, if you're digging back into a Golden Age character, and then you could tie Wildcat into, well, that's neither here nor there. I'm not writing this series. It's, you know. Rocky and almost, Ted Grant would have been a fun pairing, too. Exactly. Last thoughts about this story in specific before we kind of talk in general? Well, the, the thing that's missing in this issue that Fury gets is a check out Fury's next appearance in or look for Fury in, but you get nothing with the challengers. Right. You, you have no, they'll make an appearance in or they just appeared in. It's just, here's the challengers. And if you happen to catch these people in purple in the backgrounds of a issue of crisis, well, now you know what they're all about, but good luck finding anything else. That's a strong omission. I yeah. wish there had been something to come out of this. Especially for the time. You know, at least with, like, who's who, they would have given you the challengers are going to appear in DC Comics Presents, or they just did, or, you know, whatever the case may be. But truly, I guess it shows at this point, maybe they didn't have plans for the challengers, and they were just kind of keeping them in, in cycle. That way, if somebody did have an idea and wanted to pitch it, well, don't forget these guys. That's a good point. Well, let's look a little bit into their history, where these guys came from, how they began, the Challengers of the Unknown debuted in Showcase, Issue 6, just a few months after the Barry Allen Flash made his historic first appearance. The Challengers appeared in four issues of Showcase over the next year until getting their own series, which premiered in February 1958. The four intrepid adventurers were the brainchild of legendary comics artist Jack King Kirby, though according to the Wikipedia, which can't be wrong, creator credit might be shared with Dave Wood, who scripted the first four Challenger stories. Prior to Crisis on Infinite Earths, the Challengers of the Unknown occupied their own little secluded corner of the DC universe. Their series ran for 87 issues until its cancellation in 1978, 20 years after the first issue came out. And during those two decades, the Challengers only made occasional guest appearances in books like Doom Patrol, DC Comics Presents, and Super Team Family. And that brings us to about when this story was published, a year after Crisis finished. And as you just mentioned, Doug, at the time that this came out, there there was no next for the Challengers. It would right. be a couple of years before they started popping up again. The one thing that I'm a little murky on, because I've only recently become aware of it, is there was a Challengers of the Unknown novel. And it mm-hmm. seems to me that, that that's, just looking at the cover of it, written by Ron Goulart, G-O-U-L-A-R-T. Maybe it's pronounced a little bit different than Goulart, but that's how we're going to say it right now. Okay. Um, I, I'm sure, you know, if I dig a little bit more, but I don't want to do that and get keyboard sounds all up in this, um, we could get some dates on that. But that would have happened before this as well. And on the cover, we've got the five challengers, including June. I'm looking at it now. Yeah. And there's a uh, cross between Creature from the Black Lagoon and some Kirby-esque type of monster uh, that's just roughly larger than human size behind him. I haven't read it. I'm going to try and find this thing, and maybe at some point I'll be able to throw a synopsis of it somewhere. This looks, looks crazy. I want this. looks like the copyright is maybe 1972, but the image I'm looking at is really fuzzy. I'm trying to identify the four guys from their positions. Um, a lot of these look like stock poses that were kind of painted on and retooled for this cover. Just Definitely looks like Rocky's up front. I guess he looks fairly svelte for Rocky. Yeah, but um, the, the black hair and the right. I, I I can't imagine that would be the professor. But I mean, just based on their hair, I would, I would see Ace and 
red off to the monster's left, and I guess the last one would be the professor in the way back. But yeah, so interesting. I'd never heard of that, and now I really badly want to read that. All right, uh, published November first, nineteen seventy-seven, with a okay, so fifty. Yeah, I see. Okay, so that was okay about a year before their book ended. Right. Um, okay. Right, and the tagline above the title says, The world's boldest trouble chasers search for the truth behind the occult and mysterious. So, Not too far off from where they're at. No, no, that's right. Okay. If we're talking about the challenges of the unknown, I think we have to kind of look at them in the context of the Fantastic Four and where they differ and what their similarities are. And I think Jack Kirby has acknowledged that a lot of the work on this on this book that he did early became it was not necessarily recycled, but inspired what he would later do with the Fantastic Four. Um, other than the depictions of the characters and their like how they play off each other and how they're foils for each other, I like the basic premise for both of them that they just. They look for what is different. They look for what is strange and mysterious and can't be explained. Yes. And, yes. They, and they often have to fight it with guns or bazookas. Yeah. The, the, the challengers, like the Fantastic Four, start off as adventurers. Mm-hmm. As, I almost said as individuals, but truly the group is where the strength lies and where the, the impetus for action comes from is, is the four of them together. Five, if you count June in this case. Mm-hmm. And as you say, the challengers actually, in my understanding, never really became air quotes superheroes where they'd go out and, you know, face off against bad guys other than the bad guys coming after them with the league, the challenger haters and, you know, that type of thing. But it was the fact that they came across them rather than drawing straws or, you know, having that Lex Luthor to their Superman. It was the opportunity of adventure. Mm-hmm. That led to that collection of haters. Yeah. And the, the the fun part of the two concepts coming from the mind of Jack Kirby, and this is fun from my perspective, was back in the late 90s when you had the Amagam mm-hmm. comics line. Mm-hmm. You had Challengers of the Fantastic. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. And it was, it was written by Kiesel, drawn by Tom Grummet. And those guys truly, I mean, Kiesel inked this cover. So he's truly got some love for the Challengers. And we all know that he's pretty unabashed about his love for the Fantastic Four and to be able to bridge that gap. Professor Allen recently covered that story on the Quarter Bin podcast. So if you want to hear more about the challengers of the Fantastic, check out that podcast. And, and he owes us for that plug, right? Uh, oh, yeah. He'll, he'll be on the show in a little while, and I'll make sure that he pays up. All right. <laughs> I think these guys are they it's DC hasn't been able to market them strongly and get a solid book out of them for decades since before the crisis. I think these guys are primed for an appearance on on television or on film. I mean other than uh, other than the budgetary issues, I think these guys would be like great fodder for something like that if you just I mean you could sell the concept on its its final destination meets Ghostbusters, meets yeah. Mythbusters. <laughs> yeah, and, like, and that seems to be what DiDio was pushing when they brought him back into the New 52, was that concept as a concept. Yeah. You know, rather than developing the characters themselves. And 
to your point, you know, this is a concept that while it's held its place in history of comics, it, it's never found that sweet spot. Like the Doom Patrol never found that sweet spot. And both of those properties, I would tend to argue, both, not just Challengers, are perfect for other media. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and to your points about the Challengers, and it could be initially pitched or those first commercials could treat it truly as yet another reality show, but then you hit them at the end. You right. know, right. this becomes not a reality show and whatever facade is dropped. Yeah, and it would be a nice little kind of of meta storytelling, meta play in terms of like audience interaction and things like that. Um, and I I think the weakness, of, well, I don't want to say the weakness, but a problem I do have with this stories and with the characters is June. And it's because I hate women. No. Uh, no, it's because she feels like she's there because the groups – it can't just be a sausage fest. Because like the, the creators are saying, yes, we need a woman on the team because it's the 21st century. We need strong women in our comics. But she, she wasn't one of the group. She wasn't one of the four. She isn't living on borrowed time with them. She doesn't fit in. But I think a a new retelling. I, as much as I like these guys, I they're not fixed in the firmament of like popular culture. They're not as iconic. I think if you keep their dynamic, you could play around with it, and you could gender swap or race swap any of these characters. Oh, without a doubt, you could make you could make Red the female of the group. You could make Ace the female. You could make anybody. Some of them could be black or Latino or Asian. Anything. But, but I don't think you'd get much success making Red Asian. Just saying. <laughs> uh, probably not. Maybe. <laughs> probably not. Maybe. Depending on if South Park did a version of this. Then. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, but they, they, they still, they could just do like modern retailer. Like whoever Red is, he's the ultimate, like the extreme sports, or he or she is the extreme sports participant. Rocky, you said he's part boxer, part wrestler. Well, mixed martial arts. It's one yes. of the more popular sports in the day right now. Just yeah. make him an MMA specialist. Or you could even make Rocky your female. You know, yeah. that would certainly bring in some draw. Cast, uh, cast who is it? Ronda Rousey. Yeah, the woman terrifies me because I know she could kick the <laughs> shit out of me. Exactly. Um, and I know she wants to be in a superhero movie, so you know, give her yeah. that deal. And, and could launch it with you know the one-hour special focusing on these backstories that bring them together, and then have. Then they trip across Morellian or whatever the Morellian is going to be of the show. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why are we doing all these people's work for them? <laughs> oh, I, I'm pretty sure they listen to this podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm quite sure that the DC higher-ups, they've subscribed to the show. Yeah, I, I would watch the hell out of that show. Yeah, it would slot in very easily and certainly wouldn't take as much reconfiguring as some of the heroes that they've tried to put on CW have. And I'm not saying it necessarily needs to be a CW show, but it follows that formula pretty nicely. I think DC is – there's such a push for their for superheroes across all the media and like all the comics. But there are certain DC properties that I think they're forgetting about, like Metal Men. Yes. Why they didn't do – well, the problem is now they can't because Big Hero 6 was what Metal Men should have been. Yes. Metal Men would have translated into a great – like animated Pixar-style movie. But Big yeah. Hero 6 already did it better than Metal Men would do it. So, 
I, I, I agree completely. Yeah, Metal Men, Doom Patrol. Yeah. And, just- and Doom Patrol, but especially it's it's got the weird freakish ideas similar to X-Men and Fantastic Four, but it's it's more personal. There's a lot more melodrama and and hate, and I think it would tap into a much uh, a kind of younger, more cynical audience base. It, it certainly could. I mean, you've got enough range in the characters and personalities of the Doom Patrol where you could make everybody happy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think that's what I've got for this story and for these characters. Did you okay. have anything else? For what it is, this story is a nice reintroduction of the Challengers. It's a nice um, touch base for readers curious about these uh, purple-clad strangers. But beyond that, it could have been more. Yeah. It kind of overreached in telling a new story while trying to cram a lot of the old story in in there. If this had been, I don't know, if if they could have spread this out a little bit more, I would have appreciated it. Um, and if certainly if this had been the first part of an ongoing story or at least a prequel to an ongoing story, I would have appreciated that too. And at this point, DC was still doing miniseries, like four-issue miniseries, so there's no reason this couldn't have launched into that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and maybe there were plans, and something happened, and you know we don't know beyond that, but I'm sure your listeners have some inside, insight into that. <laughs> well, they will have to share. Well, since this didn't lead to a regular Challengers of the Unknown miniseries or ongoing series, um, if our listeners want to read more about these characters, where do you think they should look, Doug? Showcase Presents. There are two gorgeous volumes of Showcase Presents for the Challengers. It doesn't cover the entirety of their series, but it gets a pretty good chunk into it. Um, the first volume has the first appearances, all four of the Showcase appearances, and then the first run from their series, of which the the initial eight issues of that run were drawn by Jack Kirby. Mm-hmm. Um, some of those issues were inked by Roz, his wife, which is interesting. The first issue actually showcased number six, which is in that Showcase Presents Volume 1. There are two anchors, and it's some of the most touch-and-go, erratic, Kirby-not-Kirby-looking art, art, artwork. <laughs> um, throughout this, the pages of that story... There are moments where the clouds part and it shines through and it is Jack Kirby. Then there are moments of, what's Jack Kirby doing here? Who's he trying not to be? (laughs) Um, So definitely the two showcase presents volumes. And then beyond that, the challengers have been uh, a creator magnet of sorts. And there have been four, maybe five different volumes of the challengers. As I mentioned earlier, there was the uh, 1991. It was an eight issue series by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. Uh, I haven't read the entire thing, but I'm tracking those down in single issues. It is collected. Uh, There's also Challenges of the Unknown from 97-ish, which was written by Stephen Grant, at least initially, and drawn by John Paul Leon, inked by Sean Martinborough. Again, haven't really gotten into that one, but there's also a Howard Chaikin Challengers out there. There's a lot of decent reads and a lot for each individual taste. You know, so I would just recommend a lot of these things you're going to be able to find in a quarter bin or a dollar bin or, you know, whatever your local comic shop has, because the challengers kind of, as we've covered here, they're not everybody's superhero. You know, right. there's something that was maybe overordered and overlooked or underordered and overlooked. 
but there you can find a, a lot of decent stories or decent art depending on what you're looking for with these characters. Yeah. Uh, for my part, I almost forgot about it until this morning. It's a non-challengers of the unknown story, but they do make a important appearance in the story. It's in the first part of the Brave and the Bold Bold series by Mark Wade and George Perez. Yes, sir. Um, Their first my hands right now. Yeah, their first story arc. It is collected in trade. It's called the Lords of Luck. It's an awesome story. It's it's Mark Wade and George Perez. How could it be anything less? But the basic premise, without giving too much away, is that these aliens from another time and place steal the Book of Destiny um, from the Sandman mythos created by Neil Gaiman, the Destiny, um, which basically gives them control over everything. They know everything that is going to happen and will ever happen, and from that they can control or destroy whatever they want at any time. And the only thing that can throw a wrench in the works for their plan are the four people who aren't in the Book of Destiny because they escaped Destiny. And right. the reveal for that ends up being the Challengers, and it's a gorgeous reveal. It's it's when I got to that page, I was like, yes, I like threw my hands up. I was like, this yeah. is such a good idea. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, that book came out at a time where DC was trying to find itself. I think, mm-hmm. for lack of a better description, mm-hmm. or maybe losing its faith in what it was doing. It, it was a fun series. I especially liked that first one because it had. Supergirl teamed up with Green Lantern, and that was a funny pairing. You had Supergirl with Lobo, which was a hilarious pairing, right. and Batman with the the Jaime Reyes Blue Beetle, which yeah. was admittedly it was Mark Wade writing Batman and Spider Man, but yes. it was it was yep. still really funny. Um, yeah, that leads into Batman and the Legion, and yeah, yeah, where you get the compo- uh, the composite Batman instead of composite Superman. There's a, a whole lot in that first volume. Yeah, yeah. I mean. Pretty much every fan of or every listener of this podcast, every fan of DC, if they don't already own this, it should be on your shelves. It really should. All right. Any other thoughts before we go, Doug? Uh, no, no. Uh, not, not about the challengers. Well, yeah. I think I'm good. <laughs> I was just going to do a little fan wish there, but I think Wade has a strong handle on the challengers and you know, it's a shame he's not in good graces with DC right now. It, it really is, because they could use him. Where can our listeners find you if they want to hear more about you? Oh, boy. Um, unfortunately, I have a very neglected blog devoted to the Doom Patrol, and it's not unfortunate that it's devoted to the Doom Patrol. It's unfortunate that it's neglected, and that is mygreatestadventure80.blogspot.com. But the reason it's neglected is because I do reviews for comic book resources. Anywhere between four and eight reviews a week of new comics. Um, Of course, that's at comicbookresources.com. And I've got some ideas for stuff. I just haven't had the timing or ability to execute what I want to do next. As I mentioned at the beginning of this, starting to investigate the challenges a little bit more. So I'm going to bake that into whatever the next idea becomes. Maybe some of it will be on... Uh, the Doom Patrol blog? I don't know. Well, thank you very much for being part of this episode. I had fun talking about the story with you, and I definitely look forward to having you back in the future. Thanks, Ryan. Episode 11 received tweets, retweets, and favorites from Alan Middleton, Alan Campbell, 
Ange, Anthony Durso, Between the Pages, Christopher Warden, David Morgan, Dr. G, Nerdologist, DS and RS, Firestorm Fan, Greg Arujo, Hammer Strikes, Helena Wayne, Hicks, It's Plastic Man, Kyle Benning, Luke Giaconetti, Mark Newman, Martin Gray, Maya, The QH Blend, Siskoid, Stephen Bird, and Trekker Talk. David Gallagher reminded me on Twitter that Kyle Baker created a great Hawkman story in Wednesday's comics. If you get the chance, read that story. It's really good. It looks beautiful. Over on Facebook, we got some likes from Alan Middleton, Andy Capellish, Anthony Durso, Clinton Robison, Gotham Shioran, Gene Hendricks, Gord Tolton, Greg Arujo, The Hammer Strikes, Jessica Lloyd, Keith G. Baker, Kyle Benning, Rob Kelly, Sean Myers, Siskoid, Tim Wallace, and Van Z. Gord Tolton said, I'll never forget the coming attractions blurb in Amazing Heroes. You won't believe Power Girl's new origin, because we don't. I sure never did. Onto the WordPress page, Diablo Frank popped in with some belated comments on episodes 9 and 10. I'm not going to read the entire comments, because at some point I do want to release the next episode. He starts with... The more I think about your anti-Roy Thomas rant from the last episode that Shag refers to, the more I side with you, and I started out way on your side to begin with. Whatever stewardship Thomas could lay claim to regarding Earth 2 was rightly revoked when All-Star Squadron was quietly put down to be replaced by the go-nowhere consolation prize of young All-Stars, while Infinity Incorporated never caught on despite featuring the artistic talents of Jerry Ordway, Todd McFarlane, and Michael Baer. Thomas gets a lot of sympathy for his work being gutted post-crisis, but given his possessive attitude, I'm more inclined to point out that he was hardly doing Titan's numbers with his little fiefdom, and that he should have added more contemporary reading to his slavish, downright plagiaristic retellings of Golden Age scripts. Thomas made himself a nostalgia act, beginning with the cheesy finale to Cree Skrull War, and dived further into his navel from invaders onward, so his irrelevance was a self-inflicted, ultimately fatal condition for his scripting career. Audiences no longer wanted his wares, and DC initiated coyote-ugly protocols, chewing up the JSA just to get rid of him. I've been thinking about it, and it occurs to me that most of the Thomas material I liked was when he was writing for slash as Stan Lee while being groomed as his replacement slash successor. I see the invaders as the demarcation point, where Roy's concern for being the next Stan was gone, and he began writing more purely for himself, which translated into nostalgic Golden Age fare and monodimensional characterization. Well... I'm glad Frank said that so I didn't necessarily have to alienate any more listeners, but fundamentally I agree with him. In addition to my preference for Roy Thomas's Marvel work and liking the Conway Levitt's All-Star comics more than All-Star Squadron, it also bugs the crap out of me that Roy Thomas is listed as the writer of these Secret Origin stories, because what he's doing here... Taking someone else's story from 40 years earlier, keeping the same plot beat for beat, updating the language occasionally, but not entirely. And he gives the original creators credit. It says adapted from the original story by whoever the writer and artist were, but still... We see remakes of stories in comics and in films. We get new tellings of superhero origins all the time. Sometimes it's in a flashback panel. Sometimes it's in a six-issue miniseries. And most of the time, if it's a work of some significant length, the new creator puts his or her spin on it, puts his own voice into the story. That's not what Roy Thomas is doing. In fact, he frequently bends over backwards not to inject any new ideas or any new voice into the story, even when it compromises the quality. 
So I don't think the writer credit fits for him in this series, nor do I think of these stories as adaptations. I think the best comparison I can make is that Roy's version of the Golden Age stories in Secret Origins are translations. Because the object of a translation is to replicate the original author's intent as closely as possible in a new language. And that's what Roy Thomas does. He's treating the original scripts and the original art as a foreign language that contemporary readers don't understand. So he's translating the stories into 1986 comics, while not breaking from the story or the tone or the emotion of the source material. I don't know if I meant that as a criticism or a defense, but I think I would feel better about these stories if Roy and Dan Thomas were listed as translators instead of writers. Anyway, we've barely scratched the surface of Frank's musings. He continues, At the end of this story, I still don't know what Star Spangled Kid's deal is. He's not especially patriotic, he's not an exceptional fighter or acrobat by superhero standards, and he's not childlike, so the adult partner part isn't exactly relevant. Also, I'm fine with the Skyman name and costume, but again, why? Does he control air? Does he fly now? Flying isn't a unique power, you know. Whatever SSK Man is, I need more than that to give a spit. Also, Stripesy's great fear is to betray himself and end up buried where the sun doesn't shine? So Stripesy has an angle, at least, seemingly involving latent feelings for his twink, er, partner. You won't be the only ones to explode tonight. This is why Roy Thomas needed to change the dialogue, at least. Such delicious, unintentional subtext. Frank left another lengthy comment on the Phantom Stranger episode, and I'm going to go ahead and read the whole thing, because he takes some shots at some pretty beloved creators, and I think we all need to hear it. The Phantom Stranger is a character I encountered early in my time reading comics, either through an Aparo Brave and the Bold team-up, or a Spiegel Swamp Thing backup. For years, I was disproportionately interested in him because of this early exposure, but over many years in stories, I learned I didn't care much for him. His personality is too flat, and his mission too vague. He's okay as a Watcher-style flavor character during cosmic or existential crises, but his solo stories do nothing for me, aside from those two initial tales. I'm sure Paul Kupperberg is hugely responsible for this, since he's one of the more persistent writers of the character in my exposure, and I believe that he's the single most boring writer I've ever had to deal with at length, thanks to my time collecting stories of the DC Universe. I'm prejudiced in favor of a Jim Aparo's rendition of Phantom Stranger, but Barr's story stacks the deck against my being able to appreciate the titular character. I understand feeling resentment towards Christ for his surviving the purge that stole his wife and son, but to go so far as to bribe your way into raking his back with a barbed lash? Too Mel Gibson for my taste. I do give points for DC publishing a story where Jesus is a comic book character, and the devoutly religious may have contributed to their profiting off of stories that makes a hero of a guy that tortured their messiah, though. That takes serious stones, either in their pants or between their ears. That said, the story was kind of dumb and way too overtly preachy. Can I speak sacrilege? (laughs) Sure, Frank, go ahead. Nobody's stopping you here. I feel no great compulsion to buy books drawn by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, nor praise his name. I like his work, especially in licensing, but he's one of those artists who's like an objectively beautiful woman who nevertheless doesn't put lead in your pencil. JLGL draws pretty people, but usually doesn't make me feel anything. 
Also, as white male nerds of a certain age, you guys are blind to how clearly his work is of a specific period of time, from the mid-70s to mid-80s. He's definitely iconic and appealing, but his style is from that era where the ideal comic artist was still relatively homogenous and exactingly on model for the house style, but still possessed a degree of individuality and flair, but not too much now. He's DC's John Romita Sr., and man, I wish Marvel would indulge my jazzy Johnny licensing nostalgia the way DC does JLGL. Kirby is more blatantly of an earlier time, and less commercially friendly than Romita or Garcia Lopez, but more importantly, he didn't do Slurpee Cups when Generation X was in short pants, and that's all this discussion really comes down to. In ten years, there will be that much more Jim Lee merchandise out there, the choice of a only slightly newer generation. Anyway, today I think the Paul Levitt's JLGL PB&J origin is the best of the lot. It's still religious, but more ambiguous in where exactly it falls within the Judeo-Christian Islamic tradition, making it more inclusive for a broader selection of readers and offering wiggle room within the parameters of those religions, and even beyond. Joshua is willful and commits suicide, so he's not just being punished for defying God's decree against the city. I also like the idea of the Phantom Stranger being another wizard Shazam type who acted as a proto-superhero in ancient times and is a bit past getting his hands dirty by the point of modern tales. I find an odd comfort reading the Mishkin Cologne story. It was easily my least favorite when I first read the comic in the 90s, but now I think I like it the best as a pure story. Like you guys, I was put off by a sci-fi tale amidst the religious parable slash horror, but now I think Mishkin was the only guy of the lot to truly get the premise of the issue. As you say, this is in some ways the story truest to the formula of Phantom Stranger Yarns, except he accidentally serves as anthology host in a sort of mystery in space instead of a house of mystery. It's the only story with any sort of twist to it, and Phantom Stranger coming from a dependent future and being wary of wielding the power of the Big Bang explains his tendency to avoid engaging with cosmic events, while still going ahead and muddling about anyway just as he does here. Of course he'd be detached from childlike, unevolved humanity, even to our own xenophobic, self-righteously ignorant times. Like the Levitt's origin, this one helps to make Phantom Stranger make sense, but it's being in the wrong genre for the character cost it points. Again, the more Orlando story was the obvious best in narrative and origin to me, until it wasn't. It explains the Phantom Stranger's wishy-washiness in the way that makes me like him even less than the guy who brutalized Jesus Christ, and walks down a religious-themed path so obvious that it was used in three-quarters of the stories. I used to get off on the inclusion of Etrigan, nice placement for the Wagner miniseries house ad, by the way, but in retrospect, it's the supernatural equivalent of Roy Thomas continuity incest, or Marvel Cinematic Universe fan service, which masks its being an unapologetically derivative narrative in service to an underwhelming tale. Couldn't we get the Phantom Stranger Western origin, or something set in the 50s that spawned the character, or even one honest-to-goodness proper mystery thriller? No, we get the Legends crossover tie-in to Spire Christian Comics. Okay, everybody get that? Let's move on to the last episode. Siskoid said, I hate this new Power Girl origin. I don't care about Arian and never have. And while, yeah, it's a clever way to link Atlantis and Krypton, because those stories are similar, it doesn't really do anything for Power Girl, and her Kryptonian power suite is awkward in a magical context. Plus, it led to the terrible fantasy costume she wore in the late Justice League Europe issues. My history with the character dates back to JLI and JLE, though really I knew her from before. 
but the joke there was that she was always angry, and, not unlike the Ryan Shag feud, it's a joke that tends to make you more uncomfortable than tickled over time. The Palmiotter Connor series, even after they left, was, for me, the very best of Power Girl, and made her a favorite almost overnight. I loved her humor, I loved how comfortable she was with herself, I liked the zaniness, and I loved that she still had that mangy cat. Power Girl was one of the series I was most disappointed to see end when the New 52 barged in like the fun police raiding a cool party and sending us all home to bed. Love that simile. Siskoid goes on, talking about his history with Hawkman, and he brought up the fact that Roy Thomas tried to include him in every issue of All-Star Squadron because Hawkman was in every issue of the original All-Star comics. And he talks about some of the failings of Hawkman's history and then adds... Characters can go from nothing to awesome in the space of a single comic. It all depends on how they're written. To use Ostrander as an example, I don't think the Suicide Squad characters were considered good characters until he wrote them. And now, guys like Deadshot, Captain Boomerang, etc. are considered fan favorites and set to star in a movie. The reverse is much harder to achieve. If a character has been good, we'll remember that and blame the current vision rather than the character itself. Very interesting point. Uh, folks, in case you didn't know, Siskoid doesn't just run Siskoid's blog of geekery anymore. No, no. He's been corrupted into starting his own podcast, and you've got to check it out. It's called the Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, and it features Siskoid and three other guys, most of them French-Canadians like himself, talking about classic and contemporary comic book romances. I've heard the first episode. It's funny. It's insightful. It's sweet. And it's really not like any other podcast I currently listen to. It's a fresh little plot of podcast real estate that Siskoid has claimed for himself. And I think it's going to be great. You should check it out. The Lonely Hearts Podcast. All right, let's keep going. Paul Hicks said, I have to agree with you, Siskoid. The treatment of Power Girl in JLI and JLE was mostly unpleasant. She bounced around as an angry character for years because of that. I particularly hated everything to do with her pregnancy around Zero Hour. God, I forgot that she was pregnant then. On a happier note, Ainge was awesome for a podcasting novice. I can't wait to hear him on future episodes, unless he's the one who got the coveted Doom Patrol booking. Well, that's fairly ominous. Uh, Jeff Nettleton, who every week tries to give Frank a run for his money in number of words per comment, which, you know what, actually, that might be unfair, because Jeff is one of the first guys to comment on every episode, and Frank is usually one of the last. The truth is, I love reading these long comments from both of you guys. I just hate having to comb through them and figure out what I want to record and what gets left behind. Anyway, Jeff said, Tying Power Girl to Arian made no sense, except to keep the Arian trademarks going. Other than that, it accomplished nothing. Angela's idea of tying her to Monel and Daxim would have been far more interesting and could have helped iron out the Legion problems. Quite frankly, I kind of feel that DC should have just started everything from square one to avoid the problems they had for most of the next ten years. I would have preferred that they just left two parallel worlds and Captain Marvel in his own universe, but that wasn't going to happen. Rebooting everything just makes more sense. Myself now, for me, that was the first real portent of doom with the new 52. Oh, you're rebooting 95% of your continuity, but you're not interrupting Batman and Green Lantern because that's where you make your money and Morrison and Johns aren't finished with their storylines yet? That could be a problem. 
Jeff continues, The Golden Age Hawkman was always the more interesting of the two. The connection to ancient Egypt and reincarnation gave it an interesting hook, which has inspired some great stories, especially from people like James Robinson and Jeff Johns. I wish this would have taken the opportunity to make the Prince Khufu character not blonde and European, since he is reincarnated, not immortal. It's rather jarring to see a blonde guy calling more accurate Egyptians or Nubians outsiders and foreigners. Eh, a little. I'm not overly keen on Luke McDonald's art here. It just doesn't have the flair of Sheldon Maldoff in his Alex Raymond mode, or Joe Kubert, or Jerry Ordway. Looking at a lot of the recent issues of Secret Origins, it becomes obvious that this was considered a lower-tier art assignment at DC. Once in a while, we had a great fit. This doesn't seem like one of those times. I liked McDonald on something a little grittier and more realistic, like Suicide Squad and The Phantom. Gregor Rougeau said, The change to Power Girl's origin never made any sense to me. I get the desire from DC Editorial to remove anything remotely Earth-2 and Kryptonian from her backstory. However, I'm not seeing how Arion was any improvement. A quick check to Mike's Amazing World and I discovered there was about a 15-month gap between Arion's last appearance and this issue of Secret Origins. Not sure if Kupperberg hoped for a post-crisis resurgence in Arion. Power Girl is probably a character who could have benefited from having her origin shrouded in mystery. Is she another Kryptonian? Is she a Daxamite? Is she a new god? All better than Arian's granddaughter. Greg brought up an interesting point. I had forgotten how many times Roy would try to get Secret Origins readers to follow his other titles. Other than the upcoming Suicide Squad issue and the various event tie-ins, Legends and Millennium, did any other writer use Secret Origins to promote an ongoing title? Jeff brought up the point that the book was used for continuity fixes, like replacing Wonder Woman with Black Canary in the Justice League origin, and dedicating three consecutive issues to the Justice League International cast, piggybacking off of their popularity. But I think that was the opposite of Greg's point. That was more likely the case of using the Justice League's popularity to bolster sales in Secret Origins, whereas Roy used Secret Origins tales to desperately push Infinity Incorporated and Young All-Stars. Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast man, everyone left long posts on this episode. I guess that's what I get from doing a three-hour show. Next time, I'm editing down to 15 minutes. Ten for Nightwing, five for The Whip, and Johnny Thunder I'm just going to cut out entirely. Chris said, Strange that two of DC's biggest continuity train wrecks share this issue of Secret Origins. I'm sure no one at DC knew this at the time, but for Power Girl, the agony starts here. I like Paul Kupperberg's work, but this solution for Power Girl never seemed to work for anyone. I honestly think PG should have went into the Ragnarok cycle with the rest of the JSA, have her punch Star-Spangled Kid out of the way and just jump into the fray, taking her missing cousin's place. Her post-crisis appearance before John's JSA series are better left forgotten, and she was downright, well, bitchy in Justice League Europe. She came on strong in her early appearances in the 70s All-Star Revival, but she had a lot to prove and a chip on her shoulder. Conway and Levitz grew her beyond that phase of her development. Other people didn't seem to get it. Then Chris talked about liking boobs, or liking Power Girl's boob window, I should say. And he says, Zor-El and Allura and the Symbiose ship were depicted in the Levitz-Staten Power Girl tryout in Showcase around the same time All-Star was running, which was the first telling of her origin. He talked about Hawkman's history and Luke McDonald's art, and then mentioned the planned but never completed Hawk Girl origin that would have been drawn by Howard Simpson. He also said, Ryan, you've got a lot to be proud of with Secret Origins. It seemed to come into being fully formed and perfectly conceived. Every week, I'm excited to hear who you've got lined up for the next issue, and you've got a natural way of talking with your guests. Fantastic work. 
Eh, that'll probably change. Rob Kelly from the Fire and Water podcast complimented Ange on his podcast debut. Actually, a whole lot of people did. And that's one of my favorite things about this show, is introducing new voices from fans and listeners who don't do their own podcasts. Uh, Tim Wallace, back on the Blue Beetle episode, had never done a podcast before. Greg Arujo hadn't been on before episode 9. In fact, this might be Doug's podcast debut as well. I'm not sure. I can ask him that tomorrow, because we're recording another session. Anyway, Rob talked about Ordway's cover to issue 11. I don't know, I liked it. It has a nice, gentle, riding-on-the-air-currents kind of vibe. And since it was drawn by Jerry Ordway, it's just so beautiful to look at. Rob's fire-and-water spouse, the irredeemable Shag, welcomed Ange to the podcasting community. You did an excellent job on your first outing. Nice coverage and engaging commentary. Sorry it had to be with Brian, but then again, many folks end up regretting their first time. As usual, Luke brought the manliness to Brian's whiny girliness. Shag, when you talk like that, you make Siskoid cry. Uh, Shag goes on to say, This Power Girl origin is completely whack. In the prescribed... Really? Whack? It's whack? You typed that? In the pre-crisis versus post-crisis debate, I am definitely a post-crisis guy with a love for the legacies. Ironically, Power Girl and Hawkman are really the two best examples of pre-crisis square pegs in post-crisis shaped holes. Power Girl never really worked until the Johns Connor miniseries, where they said she was a holdout from pre-crisis. Interestingly, that works well with the legacy mentality of the post-crisis. I still wish they hadn't brought back the multiverse, just acknowledging that it used to exist was enough for me. As Luke indicated, Carter Hall really shined in the Johns JSA and in his own book. Also, the Hawkworld series was a very engaging read. It's a real shame so much time and energy was wasted trying to explain and fix continuity. Would have served the stories better to have just gotten on with the adventures. As Luke suggested, just have fun with the character. Oh yeah, and they totally needed to kill Bith in those first few issues of the Hawkworld ongoing. That story went on way too long. Visually, my favorite Hawkman was the post-Zero Hour, with the long hair, feathered wings, black pants and tassels and all. He looked totally badass. Jeff Johns' JSA Carter Hall is my favorite version in practice and character. My favorite Hawkwoman was the Hawkworld version, Shayara Thal. She was tough, sexy, and a total boss. She should have been part of the JLA without Katar. She was that cool. Kendra is probably my second favorite incarnation. Chad continues, As much as it pains me to agree with Lil Chad Bokelman, the Secret Origins podcast came out of the gate swinging and continues to maintain that same high quality. You do a great job producing, and your interaction with the guests is outstanding. The tangential discussions about the characters, rotating cast of guests, and personal history flesh out the issues and make for engaging podcasting. A love letter to the podcasting community is a great descriptor of the show. I feel honored to have been a part of Episode 4 and look forward to each new episode. Normally, I binge listen to podcasts to catch up. When this show comes out, I drop whatever I'm listening to and play it immediately. I'm going to go ahead and assume that Stella wrote that last paragraph when she sat down with Shag and Tom Panarese recently. That doesn't sound anything like the Shag we all know and love. Now, this sounds more like Shag. Good thing you have great guests. They really save the show. Oh, and I guess your welcome is in order since we're loaning you our Who's Who audience. After your final episode, good luck spending years of countless failed projects struggling to recapture this lightning in a bottle. You'll be the podcasting equivalent of a small-town high school football star turned used car salesman, still banking on that popularity into his middle age. 
Somewhere in Canada right now, Siskoid is crying over an issue of Haunted Love. And then Shag said, P.S. Power Girl is totally hot. Needed to add that so you didn't think someone had hijacked my account. Hmm? Too late. Kyle Benning of King Size Comics Giant Size Fun Podcast brought up the unresolved issue of which characters remembered the crisis event or that anything like that happened. Chris Franklin got in on the talk. If you're curious, check out their full comments. It's good. And Kyle also says, as Chris already pointed out, it is funny that these characters are arguably the worst victims of the crisis as far as convoluted train wreck backstories go. And they're both in the same book, Unfortunate Coincidence or Fantastic Foresight by DC. And finally, Diablo Frank got his episode 11 comment in just under the wire. He talked about how he first discovered the character post-crisis and how he liked the look and concept despite constant disappointment in the stories that featured her. And he really doesn't like Paul Kupperberg. He says, and this point I agree with, After the crisis, what we really needed to see was an entirely new Ground Zero secret origin unrelated to Superman or any other pre-existing characters, especially male ones. It would have been nice if DC had one of their female writers on it as well, like... Um, uh, Dan Thomas? I think Barbara Kiesel was breaking in around this time, and Mindy Newell was definitely around for the Lois Lane and Catwoman miniseries. Plus, they could have reached out to the indies for Colleen Doran, Wendy Peeney, Judith Hunt, or Kim Yale, never mind headhunting from Marvel, who, between Louise Simonson and Innocenti, Joe Duffy, and Christy Marks were already comparatively way out in front in this area. That's where they got Mary Wilshire, who is best known for her work on the mid-80s Red Sonia series and Firestar's first mini. Maybe then Power Girl would have had a whole identity to herself and a valuable IP, instead of going back to being the Betty Kane of Kryptonians. Uh, Frank rips into the actual origin story from last issue, making the same basic complaints that Ange and I did, except Frank does it with a lot more frothing and bloodshot eyes. And then he says, no wonder Jeff Johns explained that her boob window was actually symbolic of her lack of chest symbol slash family crest slash identity. Although a logical and unsavory progression from that metaphor was to see it as a hole waiting to be filled. In the case of this secret origin, we got a writer perfectly willing to dump a load of Arion into Power Girl to get off on using this irrelevant heroine as a vessel to birth stories he wanted to tell about his male hero. It's sickening. You know, rather than ending on such a dour note, I'm going to bounce back over to the Facebook page where Clinton Robson said, I am several weeks behind on this podcast, but loving it. It's so much fun to revisit all of these wonderful origins. Keep up the wonderful work. Thank you very much, Clinton. I hope you continue to enjoy the show. I'm gonna marry the and that'll be all for this week. Once again, I want to thank my guests, Greg Arujo and Doug Zavisha, for being on this episode. Feedback for the show can be left at secretoriginspodcast.wordpress.com or the Facebook page at facebook.com backslash secretoriginspodcast. You can find me on Twitter at ryandaily01 or at blackcanaryfan or the username countdrunkula. You can send feedback to the show via email at blackcanaryfan at gmail.com and please let me know if the feedback is private and you don't want it read on a future episode. The Secret Origins Podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics. The views expressed on this show belong solely to the speaker. All music, audio clips, and quoted text are used for entertainment purposes and are believed covered under fair use. And since I make no money off this podcast, no copyright infringement is intended. Thanks for listening. I'll hold my